Howdy, y'all. So, uh, you know, we've been trying to uh, set this discussion up uh, for like probably weeks now and uh, have a few uh, hiccups with phones and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, but we've had this discussion a, a, uh, for a, like back and forth for a while now about how compatible is like Christianity, you know, generically and libertarianism. How, like how compatible are these actually? And, you know, tonight, uh, you know, I'm going to be kind of making the case to uh, Jacob here about like, you know, the, the compatibility is, if they're really not when you get into it, like in terms of what they actually think uh, rights consist of. Because you, it's one thing to say, you know, like, you know, what, you know, how are we enforcing, you know, rights and wrong? And I, and I readily agree there's a lot of overlap there. But to actually say, well, what do these rights that we're enforcing actually consist of? It's like, that's where I think the real incompatibility lies. Between... Andrew's trying to get me to this by the end of the night, this name change. I know. It's like, it's going <laughs> to get biblical monarchy. Here we come. <laughs> so, so, all right. You know, let, let's go ahead and uh, I, I made a, a short little presentation. I'm, you know, fair warning, I'm going to be flying through some, you know, really, really in-depth uh, philosophical concepts that normally are like a two-hour discussion all by themselves. So I'm going to be condensing them into about 10 minutes. So it's, uh, if, I, if it feels like I'm going really fast and I'm not explaining everything, it's because I'm not. And if you want to get a really full understanding of what, like, what nominalism is or you know, subjectivism or these other, uh, you know, isms that I'm going to be throwing around, uh, we're going to put some links in the description to two ex very excellent podcasts uh, by the SSPX, you know, church I go to, and that, you know, explain what these philosophies actually are, where they come from, how they play into history, where we see them today. And because once you kind of understand what nominalism is, you can't not see it. You will see it everywhere. I mean, it is I, like all the basket basket case craziness of the left is hundred percent nominalism. You can't you can't not see it afterwards. The problem is this uh, you know this uh, philosophy and others is also present in libertarianism, which is going to cause big problems and big inconsistencies where you know th this cannot be reconciled with you know Christianity. So let's go ahead and start that. Uh, we're gonna have uh, Jacob record this because I forgot to uh, renew my subscription to, to uh, uh, StreamYard. Whoopsie. So, uh, so, so I'm the capitalist in this enterprise. So I, I do have ultimate control. <laughs> That's right. He does. So let me uh, start this up. Uh, there we go. Yeah. So let's start with the, uh, the obvious question is, well, you know, framing Christianity, this, you know, I'm going to do this by, you know, framing Christianity first, and then we're going to frame libertarianism, and then we're going to talk about that. So the first thing is like, well, forget who is God, what is God is a much more important question to this discussion. And the first thing that a lot of, uh, you know, probably early, you know, uh, not uh, early Christians, but like, you know, young Christians who are not very well educated in the faith, and a lot of atheists get completely wrong, is that God is not like some super being, you know, like Zeus or Thor, you know, and it's like, they, I mean, this is like a, a common straw man that, you know, the, uh, that they will, that atheists will try to use when they're debating with Protestants who don't really know the philosophy. And the, uh, you know, what, what God actually is, is the source of being itself. Now, being is a metaphysics term, 
that comes from the, you know ancient Greece, you know, where it's like, okay, what actually exists, you know, to have a being of something is to actually exist. You know, that's a, uh, yeah, that's, you know, in ontology, that is the question of, you know, what actually exists and what doesn't. And, you know, being is like the most fundamental characteristic of existence. So if you don't have a being, you don't exist. And God is the source of this. And you actually see this in the Bible. Like when he, you know, God is, the, you know, he is the answer to the question to, you know, what does it mean to be, to be, you know, that like he is being of being, you know, is the essence of essence, the source of all things. And you actually see this in the Bible where he will identify personally as this when he says, what is my name? I am, I am. Right. Yeah, and like, in the in the Hebrew, that actually is more accurately translated as "I am being." Yeah. <laughs> when you when you look at it, so. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> and it's like he's you know, like it's in the name, you know. He he is, you know, like the, uh, you know, he is being itself. And when you actually see like the early Christian saints, like uh, you know, the fathers of the church, like Irenaeus, Origen, Augustine, the Cappadocian fathers, Nicaea, you know, the first Council of Nicaea. Which, by the way, if you don't agree with, you're not a Christian. Yeah, so just I copyrighted that. (laughs) (laughs) Something people have said for a long time, but yeah. Anyway, because copyrights don't exist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, it's it's like when you look at the early Christians, to a man, every last one of them is talking about God as like the source of being itself, not as like a super being. And by super being, I mean like an uber powerful, you know, uh, you know, person entity that just inhabits the rest of reality. But it, it, but it itself is not the creator of reality. It is not the ultimate source of reality. So that's what a super being is. And that's, that's different from what we're actually talking about with God. And so the, uh, you know, so why is that important? Well, uh, let, first let's back up to classical Greece. See a lot of, you know, you think, well, why are we going all the way? If we're talking about Christianity, why are we talking about pa- the, uh, these pagans who lived like, you know, three or 600 years before Christ? Well, it's actually really interesting because they, you know, through sheer logic and reason, they figured out quite a lot about God. Yeah, like the actual one, not the not the not the Greek gods. And what they, you know, you'll see that them making statements like, like you know, the uh, they like they had figured out that like the Greek gods, you know, like Zeus and Thor, these who are actually like fallen angels, you know, when Saint Paul in uh, I think it's Ephesians. I want to say he says, "Hey, our, yeah. our battle is with powers and principalities and stuff like that." Yeah, that's these guys. Yeah, like Zeus, Thor, you know, Atum, you know, Quetzalcoatl, all that. Like those guys are fallen angels. Yeah, all of them, and they're like powers and principalities. They are here to guide human rulers in how to behave and how to actually rule wisely. And they decided that actually we prefer to have our self worship instead. So yeah, they're fallen. There's angels. also the. Uh... Well, the the monument to the unknown god in Athens that Paul talks about. So yeah, I mean the, the Greeks were kind of like they knew there was something beyond their you know shit show made up gods. <laughs> oh, they actually go much further than that. It's like they actually say that you know you'll see like Aristotle. He says like the essence of goodness, you know, which is transcendental in, in its nature, is actually greater than all of, than all the, all the Greek gods. You'll see like with guys like Heraclitus, you know, that like the logos is like, you know, that is the source of logic, rationality. It means word, but, you know, the way it's actually used amongst the Stoic philosophers is this is like some sort of animating force. We're not quite sure where it exists, you know, why it exists or where it came from or what it actually is. 
but it's some sort of logical force that seems to permeate reality and, and seems to be, you know, somehow completely interrelated to all of it. And so, you know, the, the and it is transcendental in nature. So, you know, the, uh, it's like they had, they had gotten to the point of, we're starting to define real characteristics of this, I, this uh, source of being itself. And they figured out that it was transcendent, transcendental. They figured out that like the Greek gods are not the real, you know, they're not like the source of being itself. They figured all this stuff out and they just put the, you know, you, well, Ash, let me back up. So uh, they were starting with, you know, when you're starting with, uh, you know, Greek philosophy, you have to start with like kind of, you know, Plato and Pla what's called Platonic realism. That is this idea that, you know, the, uh, like the form of goodness actually is a real thing. It's not just like what we're calling something. This is actually like an abstract object. It really does exist and has a, and has a causal effect on reality. So whether something is good or evil, you know, is going to have a cause, you, you will see a causal effect because of it. So it's like, if a action is good, you know, its effect will be causally good. And you can actually see that there's a deterministic quality to, to it. It's not just something I'm subjectively applying or not. And so, you know, you, when you have like an instantiation of what's called partaking of a form, you have like the form of a triangle, you know, which is like the definition. And then you have like an actual triangle in reality. And that actual triangle in reality is partaking of this universal form that really does exist and actually really does have real properties. And so the common examples are like logic itself, goodness itself, geometry, and the uh, numbers is like a real thing. Like, are numbers real? You know, so it's not like the word, you know, for like two. Is there actually a uh, two or dose? It doesn't matter the, the uh, you know, what language you're calling it in. But like this concept that those words refer to itself is a real thing. It's, re it's a real abstract property that makes a big difference, you know, and uh, it actually has a real, you know, like mathematics has a real causal effect on reality. And it's not just something we made up, you know what I mean? And so the, uh, you know, that's, this is what's called platonic realism. And I trust me, this is important. This is like one of the, this is like the core of the argument against libertarianism because libertarianism rejects that, actually re rejects this. So let's uh, move on. So what's the problem? So you get one small epistemological problem that, you know, this is something actually with, uh, we both agree that uh, both a libertarian and a Christian can agree on is that in any, in order for any belief system to be true, it must be derived from a first principle and logic itself is not that. So logos is kind of a problem because Due to its due to its transcendent nature, you know the logos is completely unknowable. You know, short of revelation. So it's like in order, like the entire concept is, you know, it might be true, but it's basically useless. You know, because you know, uh, you know, the the logos is basically going to have to reveal itself in order to tell you real qualities about itself. It's like we don't even know if if it if it is actually an it. Like, is it a person? Is it a conscious? Is it like conscious? Does it have a mind? <laughs> you know, is it just like an unthinking force of nature, like gravity, or you know, is it a? Uh, I should really I should say electromagnetism, but like, is it a person? You know, is like, is it the creator of all things, or is it just like kind of related to him, her, it, them? Who knows? You know, it's, it's like or maybe the passage that got into what the logos was and 
Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, maybe, you know, are we, or maybe like it doesn't exist at all. Maybe like the Epicurean philosophers would, you know, talk to, uh, you know, to the Stoics about this because the Stoic philosophers are the ones who are like really, really honing in on this logos concept and, and really refining it. The Epicureans are like your hedonists and they're like the ones who are like, eh, I don't really want to, yeah, all of that logic stuff seems to be a restraint on me. I don't really like that. So it's like, prove it. Where does it come from? I don't see it. I don't see any logos, you know, do you see it? Nope, me neither. And, you know, it's like, I think, you're, you know, maybe you guys, you Stoics are just seeing a face in the clouds and, you know, you're seeing a pattern that isn't actually there. Maybe there isn't an actual order or a logic or rationality to the universe. You know, how do you actually know that this logos, this transcendental logic, et cetera, is real? How do you know? And well, actually we do. <laughs> it's like, this is why yeah, this is what's found this is john chapter one this is the foundation of christianity this is you know the fact you know when uh you know so like when john's starting out his gospel you know there's no like leap of faith here you know he, he's like he's saying you know here's exactly what we believe and why we believe we why we believe it and why it's important and he's that you know basically this epistemological problem you know that the greeks had like figured out is like we know they know it's a problem you know they can't prove this thing that it, they, it, they can see it they can see its effects but they can't tell where it is what it is or where it comes from and so you know when the word became flesh and dwelt among us you know it's like all of a sudden all right problem, problem solved now we know now we can move forward and so it, you know i'll just read this that john chapter one in the beginning was the word that then here word is logos. So I'm going to read this as in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God. And remember, we're saying the source of being. When we say God, we are saying the source of being itself. And so we're not saying a super being, we are saying the source of existence. And so, you know, he was in the, so he, so a logos is actually a person and you know, has a masculine type to it, to it. We didn't know that before. Now we do. And so, the, you know, he, the Logos, was in the beginning with God. All and most importantly, all things came into being through him, that being, that being the Logos. And without him, not one thing came into being. So in other words, not only is the Logos one with the source of being, you know, it is like all things that exist came into being through him. So, and without him, nothing exists. And so... You know, and so, but how do we, yeah, like, cool story, bro. How do we know? It's like, well, he was in the world and the world came into being through him and yet the world did not know him. So it's now recognizing that there was an epistemological problem here, that this thing actually, this Logos actually is the creator of heaven and earth and all things. But, you know, but why is it we don't know that? It's like he's acknowledging the problem. So, like, what do we do about that? He says, the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this is the one whom I said, this is the, he is the one who comes after me, you know, and ranks, and ranks ahead of me because he was before me. And, you know, and no one has ever seen God. It is only, is God the only son who is close to the father's heart and who has made him known. So in other words, this is solving the, both the metaphysical problem. Remember, we have it, it is useless as a first, you know, logos itself is useless, entirely useless as a, as a first principle, unless you can give it specific defining characteristics, which you could not do through sheer logic. That this was like, like the, the big brick wall that still hit that, that, the, uh, that they were not able to get past. And so the Jews come along and solve this thing. 
and said, actually, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> and this is how we this is how we know the, the actual characteristics of logos. Turns out it is a person. It is you know masculine in you know sort you know at least analogous analogously uh, masculine. And you know it actually cares quite a lot about morality. It's not an unthinking force. It cares quite a lot about morality. It has real purpose in itself. You know that being itself, <laughs> and you know it has all of these extra characteristics. And now we can actually move forward. And so the uh, and so well, what, why is this important? Well, when the logos came to Earth, you know it left behind a church founded on the authority of his apostles that he promised to protect from teaching error. That's Matthew 16, 18. You are Peter upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he, you know, he says, you know, go unto all the earth, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, you know, he's actually building a church and promising to protect it from error. So like, you know, so, so you might say, be thinking to yourself now, so wait, why do so many modern Christians say we need a leap of faith to believe in God if, you know, if the logos really did come to earth and this is not like a question of belief, it's a question of history. You know, it's like, you know what I asked, like, do you believe in Alexander the Great, you know, who supposedly conquered, you know, by the way, there's way more evidence for Jesus than there is for Alexander the Great. We got like a few coins and like a really, really, you know, torn up history of Alex Ale Alexander. But, you know, for what we do know, supposedly he was a son of Zeus. People don't actually know that. Just like Philip of Macedon was not his actual father. It's <laughs> like that they, uh, you know, you know, probably really was, but you don't know. But the, uh, you know, the in the actual records, you know, it's like he's, he's actually, you know, according to his mother, his mother who was a witch of the, uh, you know, she she was a you know, priestess, witch, really witch of the goddess. Uh, I'm forgetting her name. Is you know the goddess of witchcraft Hecate? There we go, Hecate. You know, he was a, you know, his mother was a, a priestess of the, the uh, goddess of witchcraft named Hecate. And she said, nope, actually, uh, Philip of Macedon is not his father. Uh, it's actually Zeus. And the uh, and when he goes to Egypt, you know, there's another Egyptian priest like, yeah, he's a, yeah, Philip was not your father. He is, it was like Zeus or you know, Atum, I think, is the corresponding name and you know in egyptian mythology just same same entity and anyway but and this guy conquered like half a planet basically and you know the remember a story of genesis with like nephilim and all that you know they were half angel hybrids you know they were mighty warriors and they conquered shit and were like bloodthirsty beasts and you know it's like uh he kind of fits the pattern <laughs> and so anyway it's like do you really believe it yeah like now that you know that do you really believe in it you know, so some extra reason for skepticism there, but you know, it's a matter of history. You know, this is not like a matter of like religious, but you know, of maybe mm, I feel it is, or I feel it isn't. And it's like, it's not a matter of feeling, it's a matter of history. This thing did or didn't happen. This guy was or wasn't real. And this, you know, same thing with like Jesus. Like he either came, to, yeah, he either the logos really did become flesh and dwell among us and we witnessed his glory. And he also left behind a church that he promised to protect from error, you know, founded upon the teaching authority of his apostles, or he didn't. <laughs> you know, it's like it's one of the two, you know. And so why so why so where is this idea that you know Christians say we need a leap of faith uh, to believe in God come from? The answer is Emmanuel Kant, and we will get to him. So uh, you know, but here's why this is actually really, really practically important is that, you know, remember he said that all things came into being through him. Let's go back to that right there. That in other words, all things that exist, you know, came into being through him. Well, 
there's two things that definitely did it, and those would be sin and error. So what is sin? So uh, sin, you know, that is, uh, you know, so what are these? These are actually these are categories of actions. Sin is when I will my will refuses to partake of God. Remember, we said that uh, these, you know, we have Platonic realism, which is, you know, that these uh, instantiations of, you know, are partaking of a certain quality, abstract quality, like goodness, you know, that, that sin is I am, you know, and all of these are kind of transcendentally locked in with God. So sin is my will, you know, refusing to partake of God, of goodness. That's what that actually is. So in other words, I'm part, I'm in, you know, sin is non-existent. You know, when I am, when I am sinning, you know, that is an act of momentary non-existence of my will, basically, because my, you know, that is what's free about will is that it's free to not exist. <laughs> it's like, it, you know, whereas other things, whereas like other things, it's like, you're kind of locked in, you have to, you have to exist, you know, your free, your will, on the other hand, is free not to. And error is kind of the same way where your intellect is, you know, your, your mind uh, doesn't have to partake of logos. It is also free, you know, that it does not have to uh, always be completely 100% connected to, uh, you know, to God and to, you know, to the logos, to logic itself. And whereas they, God punishes the first one, he doesn't seem to mind the second one for, uh, for reasons I'm not quite clear on yet because I haven't gotten that far in my study, but not relevant. So, but however, what's it, you know, we, we say that, you know, all human action exists. Uh, actually, no, no. <laughs> some actually, some human actions actually don't exist because they, and they don't, because they don't partake of these, uh, these abstract qualities of, you know, of goodness and rationality. And this is why, and so now we have for the first time ever, you know, when we know the logos became flesh and it, it, it is the creator and all things came into being through it. We know how we have two categories of, act, of human actions that don't exist, and we know why they, they and they and we know why they don't have uh, good results because they don't partake of rationality or they don't partake of goodness. So, and because remember the law of causality that you know effects will always mirror their causes. Well, but, you know because of this. Well, okay, it, this one action that does not partake of goodness, therefore, it's not going to bear good fruit. You know because causality works that way. And, you know, and uh, Christ actually says this, you know, kind of straight up. He says, hey, good trees bear good fruit. This is why, you know, that's why it's the law of causality at, at work. And so the, uh, and we know from Genesis that all that exists is good. When God said, you know, and it's all rightly ordered to God. You know, he said, he created everything. He said, he looked at it, he said, this is good. And so, you know, and so what we see is that evil isn't actually a substance. It's kind of just like darkness. You know, there's, there's no, uh, actual substance called darkness is just an absence of light light actually does have a substance called like photons and photons actually are real and but whereas darkness only exists as an absence of photons so darkness itself doesn't actually exist and that's kind of the point that john chapter one is also making is that it, in that in that light and dark imagery is saying hey light actually exists and it is the life of the life of the world whereas darkness doesn't doesn't actually exist it, you know it, darkness did not come into being through god through the logos and so this by the way this is also related to you know like gnosticism and star wars you know that have these dual you know kind of dualist moralities where there's a like a good god and a bad god or, or there's like a good side to the force or there's a dark side to the force you know why you know why is this wrong 
well, this is, you know, because one of these doesn't actually have an existence. One of them is just an absence of the other. And so there are not two set two fundamental substances to the uh, two fundamental essences to the, uh, you know, to the universe. There's just one. And that would be God, that would be God, the source of being, the, the single lone source of being. So, yeah, well, you know, so like, as I was saying before, basically sin is willful, willful non-being, doesn't actually exist. You know, it's just an absence of goodness. And so it's, you know, partaking of an absence of being, you know, ditto error. It's a non-partaking of rationality. So, and, and by extension, free will, free intellect, these are, you know, the, uh, the will and the intellect choosing not to exist, basically. And so, you know, so like connecting a few Christian dots here for, you know, for people who are kind of following along. So why is it that the wages of sin is death, you know, non-existence? It's because, you know, the law of causality, you know, non-existence begets non-existence. That's why. And the, these things accumulate. That's what, that's what that is. So this is why you can logically say that sin begets death, begets non-existence, begets slavery, which is an absence of choice. You know, it's like that, you know, because these things exist only as absences. And the more you compound these absences, you know, well, the less you exist, the less you can choose, the sicker, the way, you know, the sickness is an absence of health, et cetera, et cetera. You see the, and this is and why so, that, that, there's that really dumb atheist meme where Jesus mm -hmm. is like, knock, knock, and they're like, who's there? It's like, me, I'm here to save you. And they go, save you from what? I'm here to save you from the punishment that I was going to give to you and now I have to die to save you from like, well, no, that's the, the hell yeah, isn't no. a punishment. Hell is the natural consequence of sin. Death yeah. is the natural consequence of sin. Like, you know, in God being a God of order, it's like things are ordered in a certain way. And if we sin, there are consequences for that. So Jesus had to die to reconcile us to him, to save us from our sin. It's like, it's not, exactly. <laughs> it, it's completely sensical. Yeah. It's actually, it's, it's like you're choosing non-existence. And, you know, he's trying to right. save you basically from your own choices. Right. And, and, you know, so the... Uh, and thank God for uh, that. Like, thank God he's loving and merciful that, like, he doesn't just, like... Because like, he'd, he'd be well within his rights to be like, uh, okay, you're choosing non-existence, bye. But, like, no, he loves us and he chose to intercede like, on our behalf. It's just because of me and it's held in yeah. existence because of me. If you, yeah. and, like, you don't have to, but, uh, you know, there's li literally nothing else to choose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, but you can choose nothing. You know, but, so anyway, the uh, it's like, is it just me or the atheists just gotten really stupid in the last twenty years? I see, like, I don't know. I remember back in the nineties, they seemed to be a lot more impressive when I was eight and nine, you know, than they are now. They seem, just seem like really dumb these days. They don't know anything about what Christians actually believe. Whereas like atheists in the nineties, like they actually like had some they, familiarity. They pick the low hanging fruit. Like it's easy to yeah. go after the worst of the Protestant evangelical church that isn't steeped in church history, that isn't steeped in, in philosophy and, and, yeah. and deep theology. Their, their theology is basically like, oh, the Bible says what I want it to say. <laughs> yeah, it's like those guys. And yeah. they're the guys who don't actually know that God is the source of being, not a super being. And so it's like, you know, when, say, when the atheists are kind of straw manning God as like, you know, like he's Zeus or Thor, it's like, uh, yeah, actually, that that thing doesn't actually. That's not what we're talking about. They don't even know what we're talking about. And so the uh, you know, I had like one atheist the other day arguing with me on Twitter. He's like, I don't see what got what got what you know what God would have to do with morality at all. He's just off in the distance somewhere. You know, he's he's just like some super being like Thor. 
well, what, what does he have to do with reality? Reality is actually, you know, and then he, and then he comes back at me with actually morality is based off of transcendental logic. I'm like, well, where'd you get that? <laughs> 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 you know, really? <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I got that because I believe I, I, you know, listen to Hoppe. I'm like, uh, that's not what Hoppe says. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're gonna get there. <laughs> but so now let's... stop. The Q-tip needs to stop when you hit resistance. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So anyway, uh, you know, let's, let's frame libertarianism now. And so remember we said this platonic realism of, you know, of the, these forms, these abstract objects that we are partaking of or not partaking of that is intrinsic to like Christian morality and Christianity itself. Uh, there, there's an opposite, you know, it's opposite, uh, you know, ideology is called nominalism and come, it came around kind of in the 1300s, uh, you know, through some monks in England, I think, who were very misguided. And anyway, but what nominalism holds is that, you know, like uh, when I am, you know, like when I say a, uh, it says that they, all these things, these abstract properties, like, uh, you know, like logic, goodness, you know, morality, things like, they, like natures, like they don't actually exist. These are just names or titles that man is subjectively applying, you know, to things outside of himself. So what it's doing is it's a reversal of, you know, of object and subject. So the, you know, basically says everything, you know, like all of ex existence is subjective. This is, you know, I don't know the actual thing. I'm just, you know, all I have is my experience of the thing. And then in order to understand this, I'm, a, a, you know, from within myself, from within my intellect, I am applying a framework to this thing that I'm going to call that logical, or I'm going to call this, uh, uh, you know, moral, or I'm going to call this ethical, or I'm going to call this mathematical. And you can start to see how this is going to go very, very wrong very quickly. This is how we get to what is a woman? Well, it's a person who identifies as a woman. Yeah, the, because based on my experience of this, you know, a woman can easily have a penis. <laughs> You know, this is where that goes. Now, granted, the 13th century monks were not thinking like this. They just, they didn't think it all the way through. And, but now, like, when you start to see that the, this idea that these, uh, these properties of, like, goodness or rationality or whatever, uh, you know, that, the, you know, that these are not actual real things that have a causal impact on reality, they're just uh, names that humans apply to some things and not others. You can quickly see why the left is actually being fairly logically consistent when they say math is racist. And, you know, rationality is just like a, a social construct of the white cis hetero uh, Christian male patriarchy. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is like, this is actually where that comes from. This is actually a real rational system. They're the rational ones. You know, they're, I should say, they're not the rational ones. They're the, the logically consistent ones. Whereas like, you start getting into like conservatism or libertarianism where they're actually a little less consistent. <laughs> they're more consistent with reality, but reality is not nominalism. You know, but you know, the pro and this is where that, this is where problems actually begin to start is that, libertarianism and, you know, constitutional conservatism and actually all classically liberal ideologies from, you know, classical liberalism to libertarianism to full-blown Marxism and fascism, they all have these same four 
uh, problematic presuppositions in them that I'm about to address. And so, you know, with, with nominalism, we're no longer like receive like we're, we're talking about like truth, like what is truth? You know, in the classical conception of like the like the Christian conception, the Greek conception, truth is me receiving something from the outside, input from the outside, and conforming my mind to it. So the object really does exist outside of me, and me, and truth is me conforming my mind to fit the object as as it actually is. So subject is in here, object is out there. What nominalism is doing is, is it's saying subject is out there and I can make it whatever the fuck I want. An object is actually in here. The only thing I can really, really, truly know is what's in my head. And that's why I'm certain that women can have penises. You know, it's like you get solipsism where they go, I can't even know what's in my head. <laughs> and by the way, if you, if you talk bad to me, that is a, you are attacking the object of truth I know in here. And that's why that's a microaggression. <laughs> and that's why. You know, for, you know, I am justified in using absolute force against you. And because the rest of the world is just a blank slate that I can create as I want, because it's the subject, not me. <laughs> it's like, you know, the subject, you, the rest of reality needs to conform to me, the object of truth, which is in here. And I know it because I thought through, you know, that's nominalism. And so the, and you're, you're going to be thinking, where the fuck does this come in in, in, uh, in libertarianism? We'll get there. So the, uh, you know, so, you know, it's, you know, way less crazy. It sounds way less crazy than that. Like this, again, the left is actually the logically consistent ones when it comes to nominalism, when it comes to actually applying it in libertarianism, they're not actually all that consistent. You know, the, uh, you know, you, you do get some performative contradictions in there because, you know, generally these people really do believe in like logic and goodness and stuff like that. And they're not, you know, these people, these people themselves are much more consistent with reality rather than nominal than actual philosophy and so we get you know moving forward we get to uh you know a, a man named Rene Descartes and this is you know where you know he's uh he's taking this idea of nominalism problem with one of the problems you get with nominalism really quickly is now that we've destroyed these abstract properties we and these these things that we're calling them no longer have like a causal impact on reality we can't use the law of causality in order to determine good and evil it's like you can't know these things. They, these things are, you know, like epistemology itself basically breaks. You have no actual under, a way of knowing for sure that something is good or something is evil or something is rational or not. And so, you know, you, you start to, you know, have a real doubt. And Rene Descartes, uh, he actually kind of systematized, is the first one to really systematize this and saying that, you know, I notice sometimes that, you know, my senses can deceive me. It's like if I look at like a pencil in water, you know, it, you know, in a glass of water, you know, it looks like it's broken. And, you know, granted, he didn't have, a, you know, pencil, but, you know, that's kind of like an example of what he's talking about. Is it looks like it's broken when I know through other senses that it's actually not broken. And so what, so he goes through this entire system of, well, what if I just doubt everything? What can I be absolutely certain of? He's like, I think, therefore I am. That's cogito ergo sum. You know, I think, therefore I am. Therefore, he says, this is the only thing I can truly know as the source of being. So remember how we said God earlier, that God is the source of all that being? Well, I can't know him anymore. You know, nominalism kind of breaks epistemology. I have no way of actually knowing God anymore. And this is something we'll get to with Kant, because Kant realizes this problem and tries to solve it. And he doesn't succeed anyway. But uh, 
anyway, but uh, you know, we get to Descartes, who who kind of sees this problem as well. It's like, well, what can I actually truly know? Because that's where I have to start. The only things I can truly know are inside of myself, and so I have to start there, as because I can't trust my senses. You know, I, I have to I have to start there. This is the real, the only. And ran rolling in a grave. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. And by the way, I'll actually mention Rand Randlayer's. One thing she really got right was that yes. Carl is such a bastard. Yes. <laughs> it's like she and she really liked Aquinas and Aristotle. Like great, yeah, you know, great woman, except you know, except for everything else. Yes. <laughs> she managed to screw course, everything but else so up. Far. She really got those that one thing right. So anyway. But uh so yeah, the we get to Kant, who's like, okay, we can't know God. Can't know God. Yeah, because we, you know, we, we you know, we, this uh, he's the this is where we actually get that leap of faith from. So technically, Protestantism doesn't really uh, it's like some Protestant sects really reject, uh, you know, the traditional philosophy that comes from the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, but and. Uh, you know, the, and like Luther famously called reason like a, like a whore. <laughs> you know, the reason's a whore that is like the enemy of faith. And you know, and uh, Kant is actually a Lutheran, and so this is where he kind of gets that from: is that this idea that faith and reason can't actually touch each other. And that's why a leap of faith becomes necessary in order to believe in God, because faith and reason, instead of being allies like they were in the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. You know, now they, they're actually mortal enemies and there are, there's like there's there needs to be this wall in between so that they don't destroy each other. I'm sorry, and, but like but like okay, reason is a whore or ninety-nine theses on the wall. Like pick one. Pick I know, one. right? Like what the fuck? <laughs> I know. And, and I say I mean, he, you know, Kant, you know, Luther is not all that consistent, whereas Kant you know, actually sees these problems, tones down Luther quite a lot, and then tries to fit, give it, give it a uh, philosophical rigor to it. And so the, uh, so like again, faith and reason can't touch each other. That's why it becomes necessary. How convenient for the state! <laughs> it's like so now you've so but politics is now detached from religion because remember, you know, reason, you know, politics comes from reason. And you know that exists in one sphere, and there's this nice, convenient air gap where you know, and then faith exists on the other side. Therefore, you know, nominalism ends up being highly convenient to both corrupt statesmen and property owners alike who don't want any sort of accountability to God. You know, because that's a that's a liability, that's a responsibility. You you know, as uh, you know, and now uh, as a statesman, you know, truth detection is no longer a core core competency or a core duty of statesmen. You know. No duh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like this is where that started off with. And so this is where we actually get separation of church and state from. Because uh, the church, yeah, that's faith, that is over here. And we're going to have a nice wall in between that and logic, uh, which is where politics comes from. So therefore, now we're going to, you know, and me as a statesman, I'm not a court, I'm not a theologian. You know, like I can't tell which of these is the real church or not. So I'm just going to treat them all neutral. You know, state atheism minus the name. That's what separation of church and state is. So this is where that actually this is where that logically comes from in the so-called enlightenment. So, so God gonna, is now we're gonna build a wall, but we're gonna make the Catholic Church pay for it. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> oh, we're gonna make all of human civilization pay for it in the 20th century. It's like Catholic Church is like, oh, that's like the, just the very beginning. <laughs> it's so much worse. 
<laughs> so anyway, the uh, it's like so now thanks to this idea of nominalism that again this idea that abstract properties don't actually exist they're just like names that we're that humans are so you know from the inside subjectively applying to the outside world and we can't actually know what the outside world is we just have this experience of what it is that is entirely subjective and it's like we don't know reality we only know our experience of reality and you know because of that we get we get to uh you know have a state that's atheist wonderful and I can't, I can't imagine how this is possibly going to go wrong, you know, and, uh, you know, God's shuffled off in a court, he's never going to hinder human ambitions ever again. What could possibly go wrong, you know, besides the entire 20th century? So anyway, continuing with Kant. So Kant, as a Lutheran, he realizes this is a problem. It's like, you know, because you know, how do I get to, to ethics again? Like Kant, he is not a hedonist. Like he is a really, really prudent moral man. Like, he, like, well, not prudent, but like, you know, prudish is probably a better, better word. Like this guy, like he was known to be like so disciplined and orderly in his life that like he would go for a walk every single day exactly at five o'clock. And he was so punctual that his neighbors, at, you know, would actually, uh, you know, set their clocks based off of when he walked by. Like he was that punctual. Like, you know, Kant is walking by, it must be 501. <laughs> And like, that's how punctual this guy is. Like this guy is rigorous in how he lives. It's like, he is not some like, you know, like hedonist or hippie or, you know, or atheist or whatever. And so he realizes that, oh, this nominalism is actually a real problem now because I can't use the law of causality to determine right and wrong anymore, or just to, to just quickly analyze whether something, you know, was good or bad. And so, what he comes up with as his you know, solution is that morality or ethics then must be a universally true rule based solely upon pure reason without any sort of external assumptions about reality, because I can't know all that thanks to, thanks to nominalism. You know, it's like people can only you know, know their experience of reality, not reality itself. And our senses are not, you know, according to Descartes, our senses are not actually all that uh, reliable. So, you can't so you can't use any of that stuff all of that stuff is extra is external so everything i so whatever morality must be and i know this because i'm a good lutheran you know that it's like that you know there must be a real a real morality i live my my whole life this way and it's like it's like there must be some way of doing it so it must be just based upon pure reason and this is where you get this is where this this uh dumb atheist you know the other day actually got it from because the what's what that's actually called is transcendental idealism as, as the uh you know this idea of where you know this transcendent logic he supposedly believes in you know where this actually you know where it comes from he never knows but uh this is actually where that comes from this is kant's ideology this is kantianism right there now kant was smart enough to know that uh you know that transcendent logic he believes in comes from god duh <laughs> it's like so like kant was not stupid this other atheist on, on twitter was and so the uh, you know so uh, but so he d decides that oh this actually seems and actually when you like look at it this actually seems kind of reasonable you know it's not but you can you can kind of see why he'd be like okay so is lying good or bad you know it's, it, he's like well I know that uh, that remember like what we said earlier about how Christian what 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 sin actually is is non-existence you know. And but we've completely broken ourselves off of, from that because that requires metaphysics. And we've just told you that 
yet even if metaphysics exists, we can't possibly know it. So it might as well not exist. So we can't use those exist, not exist definitions anymore. They're, they're useless to us. So, you know, he, he says that uh, real, it must be just based on pure logic. And this is the only way we're going to know what morality actually is. And so, you know, but, but which is, ends up being a problem later for materialists, you know, because if, if you're coming from like a kind of a Catholic background where you have natural law, and which is the idea that we, we can use reason because, you know, we believe in one God, you know, one, you know, and that has these transcendental properties of like goodness and logic and all that, because they come from the same exact source, one of them can be used to find the other. You can use morality to find logic and you can find logic to find morality, use logic to find morality because they come from the same source. Now, if you're a materialist and you don't believe in God and, you know, it's in the name that only matter exists, like only matter, energy, they call it physicalism today because it turned out that, oh, actually, uh, matter isn't all that exists. We had some stuff from quantum mechanics that kind of proved all of that wrong. So it's funny that the, the atheists can't even get it right within their own framework. <laughs> their own framework is not even internally coherent. And so they had to change the name. So, it, so there's, oh, if physics can touch it, then it's real. You know, if, it, if physics can't touch it, then it's not real. We don't care. And so, the so but now you've said, okay, there's no actual source of being. So how so how is it you know that you know the being the transcendental being of logic and the transcendental being of which uh, and the transcendental being of morality or ethics, which by the way, neither of which you've actually justified the existence of. You've never said where these actually come from. You just assume they're out there in the ether somewhere. <laughs> but you but like why do you assume they're the same thing or even related? You know, you have no re you have no actual reason to believe that one can find the other because it, you don't know that they're coming from the same source because you don't believe in God. <laughs> so it's like that's kind of a problem. But they don't answer that one. They don't like it. They don't like it when you answer that question. So anyway, uh, Kant realizes, okay, it must be all coming from interior. It must be a universal rule. So you know, I can see that you know, lying has real consequences, and people have a duty to tell the truth. And, you know, this is where I get that rule that, okay, so lying is always bad. You know, I know that now. And, you know, the, well, what about when, like when the, you know, the kind of the, the rebuttal to it is like, well, what about when the Nazi comes to the door and they ask if you have Jews in your attic and you tell them, no, <laughs> it's like, there's no, Jew, there are no Jews hiding under the floorboards. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, uh, well, that's, you know, and whereas the traditional Christian morality actually makes much more sense is that, well, they're coming in to do sin. Sin is an absence so, you know, of, of goodness. Therefore, their action is a goodness. Therefore, they, they have, uh, they've lost their righteous truth. Humans have a right to the truth, except for when they alienate that right through sin. And so if I know the Nazi is coming in because he wants to kill the Jews and, you know, send them off to like death camps or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I don't have to, I don't have to give this guy the truth. I'm not obligated to. So like, whereas the traditional Christian morality solves this problem very neat, nice and neatly, uh, Kant has no answer for it. And nor, nor would he because the Nazis didn't exist back then, but we had, we got them thanks to him. <laughs> and uh, so his ethics, uh, and by the way, this idea that you can just, you know, make ethics out of pure reason, it's, it's like saying you can make a house out of pure physics, you know, it's like, uh, no, houses are made of like wood and concrete. You know, it's like granted, all of these are subject to the laws right. of they, physics. They, 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 they burn down the the house of Christianity, and then they rebuild. They rebuild another house that's just made from the bricks of Christianity, and go look. We created our own morality. It just happens to look exactly like Christianity. Where eventually the athe the atheists and the materialists and physicalists go. Wait, why does this look exactly like Christianity? 
we don't like that. <laughs> we're going to do our own thing. We're going to do our own thing. Actually, it's funny because it's like uh, Karl Marx was the one guy who really, uh, you know, who really understood what a problem this is. You know, remember how I said earlier that, you know, we ha- you know, that, uh, you know, this transcendental logic, why do you know that exists? Like, how do you know it's not just your experience of logic and these things differ you know, substantially, this is where Mises goes and actually criticizes uh, Karl Marx for what's called polylogism, because what Marx was saying is that, you know, there's bourgeois logic and there's proletariat logic, and they, and the reason is these people just both have different experiences of what logic is. There's no one real logic, which is actually the rational conclusion of materialism. And so when you have, unfortunately, this is a rare Ludwig von Mises big L in his category where uh, he was actually wrong in criticizing Marx. Marx, Marx was correct. If materialism is true, granted materialism is false, so this isn't actually a problem. But uh, you know, Mises was right, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah, he was right <laughs> before the wrong reasons. Exactly, it's a very, very rare Mises L. And uh, so the uh, you know, the, by the way, I love that term polylogism. I love throwing it around now because it actually is the logical conclusion of you know, atheism or materialism. Like, how do you know that there's actually only one source of logic, or that what you call logical? You know, again, remember nominalism isn't just something, a term or, or a name or a title that you're applying to some actions and not others based on your personal subjective experience. How do you know? You don't. <laughs> it's like, and so therefore, it's like it's actually a pretty rational conclusion to say that, oh, yeah, certain groups will be uh, different based on, you know, their experiences. And sometimes they have very similar experiences. So it still makes sense to argue some of the time. And so you know, the, uh, you know, because again, if there's two different kinds of logic or two different experiences of, of logic, how do you know that they're similar enough that argumentation makes sense? You know, you, you might as well just like fight like animals. Maybe, you know, if they're that different, you know, then maybe you should fight like animals. Maybe that is more rational, which is, by the way, the conclusion. Now we're just that, saying humans can become animals. Yeah, which, and, and this is basically what Marx says. pretending to be cats in schools and putting litter boxes in the fucking closet. So, I mean, it's like... It's, yeah <laughs> it's like this is their experience how dare you how dare you criticize that you dig it <laughs> and so it's, it's like this idea that you can say that you know uh you know that i have ethics that's founded on pure reason it's like you know it's like no like logic is just like a tool or a methodology it's not like a thing in itself and this is you know it's like it's like saying my house is like free floating in space and it's not actually made of wood and concrete and sitting on a concrete slab due to the laws of physics but it's like actually made of pure physics itself it's like that's just delusional and stupid you know it's like they clearly just don't understand whenever like an atheist will say this is like they clearly just don't understand philosophy and uh this is also why where you know i mentioned ayn rand we mentioned ayn rand earlier so one thing she really got right was what was what a bastard Kant was it's like she thought that Iran demolished epistemology and was responsible for the 20th century. He was, you know, it's like amongst others, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, he gave the, the, the philosophical rigor to the system that kind of led to the Nazis and the commies and, you know, and the progressives, you know, all three evil ideologies of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, the Catholics did try to warn you. Well, <laughs> that, how much that worked, worked out for it. But anyway, and so it's like he did you know, demolish epistemology, and now we have men thinking that they're women because those terms are just you know terms that humans subjectively apply based on their personal experience, and all that nonsense is nominalism. And so where does this actually come up in libertarianism? So remember, libertarianism is actually not very consistent with not you know it is in there, 
but they actually they try to make it a little bit more consistent with reality. So you get to like Rothbard and Hoppe, who to their credit, really thought all of this shit through. It's like, these were clearly philosophically literate men, and when libertarians disagree with them, you know, they do so because they're inconsistent with their own fundamental assumptions about reality. There's basically, there's presuppositional differences. When you say, oh, I disagree with Rothbard's conclusion about like abortion or something like that, it's like, yeah, it's like there's, that's not the real disagreement. That's not the core of the disagreement. The core of the disagreement is actually much lower down than that to where you have some different philosophical assumption about reality. And so the, uh, you know, so when we say like, remember, like there's this uh, kind of notion that libertarianism is pure logic. It's just a priori true. Well, how, how a priori true is it actually? And like all classical ideologies, it's founded upon like four different philosophies it is like this uh, idea that uh, it's only as a priori true as its, as its foundational assumptions are. You know, if any of its assumptions are false, then any beliefs founded upon those assumptions are likewise false. And this is actually something Ludwig von Mises says almost verbatim in, you know, in his critique. And, uh, you know, he has a, 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 a book on uh, critiques of the praxeological method. He says there's, four, there's actually four ways of attacking, uh, you know, Austrian economics and uh, libertarianism as well, then one of them is to question the, the uh, fundamental assumption. So when you have some idiot hop, some idiot libertarian on there who's like, nope, it's a priori true. It's like that you're making an argument proves me correct. It's like, you're just a philosophically illiterate. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. It's like, no, it's like, this is that, you know, actually you can question whether it's a priori true or not based on, you know, whether it's fundamental assumptions that it's built on are true or false. And so the libertarian podcasters who told you that, you know, it was all, that the ideology was all pure reason. These guys are just propagandists and they're philosophically illiterate. They're entertainers, not philosophers. And Mises, Rothbard, Hoppe seldom made such errors. And so what are these, you know, uh, four philosophies that all, you know, from conservatism to progressivism, to fascism, to libertarianism, uh, what are the, the four ideologies that these are all Founded upon is called, are called materialism, nominalism, subjectivism, and naturalism. We're going to see, we're about to see where these are used. So, the uh, you know from, again, remember from Descartes as atheists, you know Rothbard and Hoppe, they logically start with material man, so you know as the only true knowable, as the only truly knowable source of being. Material that's materialism right there. So immaterial things they either don't exist or can't be known thanks to nominalism. So therefore, we cannot make laws as if we know God is real. And that's because that's entirely unknowable. This is what's called naturalism. You know, the, and so, so ethics by extension, ownership, is a system of subjective norms. This is subjectivism. So they're, when they're talking about right and wrong or just and unjust, you know, they're not talking about like a real right and wrong. They're just talking about it as a functional necessity for like peace and prosperity, which is almost verbatim from Hoppe. You know, he, it's like a social, they're talking about a social construct. You know, it's like he, Hoppe will call it, you know, in like a getting libertarianism right. Uh, him and Rothbard will both call it like norms for minimizing conflict. So this idea that, hey, if we're, if we're going to minimize conflict, we need some sort of system of norms. And so we know that it doesn't, you know, right and wrong don't really exist. But we need to, you know, have some sort of system as if they exist, you know, in order for us to kind of get along and not kill each other. And okay, sounds reasonable. And so the ownership isn't actually a real claim. It's not a real moral claim. You know, it's just a name or a title that 
we are subjectively applying to some people and not others. And it exists only because we think it does, not, not it doesn't actually exist. Then, then, and so this is where we actually get that supposed uh, is ought gap, is that this is what nominalism causes, that uh, because I can no longer use the law of causality to say, okay, the, uh, that, you know, the abstract property of goodness will cause, you know, uh, goodness in its effects, you know, that will, you know, I, I no longer have that anymore. So, you know, because of nominalism. And so this idea that there is an is-ought gap that needs to be crossed in the first place, it is predicated on this idea of nominalism, making it that, oh, these are just like terms that we're subjectively applying. So under like Roman Catholicism or, Christ or religious Christianity, this thing doesn't actually exist. You know, this is all cap doesn't actually exist because goodness is an abstract property that really does exist and has a causal effect on reality. So the uh, we kind of see like you know, so now you're thinking, okay, well, you know, I thought you said this was a Kantian uh, that libertarianism was based on Kant. It is. Remember the nap? <laughs> it's like that nap is actually what's called a, a categorical imperative. This is what he when he says universally uh, true rule. That's what's called, he calls that a categorical imperative. So, that, and that's what the nap, nap actually is. So he says like, each, because each individual, you know, who is the ultimate source of his or her own being, you know, owns his, own, her, owns his or her own body, you know, therefore it is always subjectively unjust for an individual to initiate aggression against another individual or their property. So there are no, and because of that, there are no unchosen obligations or, you know, or duties because I am the owner of my own existence, not a steward. So under Christianity, God's owner of everything. And, because, and I'm just a steward of creation. And so the, uh, and as a steward in, on, under Christianity, as a steward, I have a very real duty to the owner, to uh, the owner of the property, you know, namely myself, uh, you know, regardless of how I believe or, or how I feel about it. You know, whereas like owners are only accountable to themselves. This is why, uh, you know, it is supposedly morally neutral. You know, this is why libertarians are supposedly morally neutral because owners are only accountable to themselves. And again, this is predicated on the idea that man is the owner of himself. That's self-ownership. That means he has a claim to as his own source of being that and that, uh, you know, not, and not that he comes from some other source of being. So. Yeah, and because of this duties, and because I am unable to transfer the title, you know, to my to my body, that is the the claim of ownership. I'm unable to transfer this, but this body to somebody else. Yet, <laughs> you know, because of that, any duties I have have to be continuously have to be continuously chosen. So that means things like fatherhood, motherhood, all of these are revocable. And this is what this is why when you know when you get uh, the uh, you know, the, the crazy libertarians who are like, oh yeah, if you want to like ace, you know, who's like, oh yeah, if you, if a parent wants to abandon this kid, yeah, actually that's okay. <laughs> and, uh, and the kid, and the, uh, if the kid wants to, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of run away from home, that's his right or whatever. And, you know, the, and so all of these, you know, that both like childhood and parenthood are both like revocable claims. Like I don't have to take care of my, my parents when they get old if they don't want, if I don't want to. You know, it's a revolt, you know, because there's no type, you know, I can't transfer the title to my own body. It's physically impossible. And so the, uh, the idea that a duty must be continuously chosen. Yeah, actually, Ace is right. You know, if nominalism is true, if materialism is true and all that, he's right. You know, and you disagree with him because you haven't actually thought this all through. And like, you can start to see how this can go very, very wrong. 
and you know, how these this this idea of like nominalism, subjectivism, materialism, which libertarianism definitely presupposes, you know, are really inconsistent with you know what uh, the Christian concept of reality. But it gets worse because remember how we said that. Uh, you know these, you know these like sins and error are non-existent, that, and uh, well, nope, not anymore. Uh, these are just names that are subjectively applied. So it has big implications for you know libertarian social policy because now all of a sudden, instead of being an absence of goodness, you know, like addiction is a right. You know, it's a human action. You own your own body. You can you can choose whatever you want to put in it, uh, and it doesn't matter. You know, and sex work is a right. Gluttony is a right. All this, all these sins, which you know, again, the reason this is going to make a problem for Christianity is that for something to, you know, for you to have a right to something, that thing has to exist. That's why, like, when I say there's no right to change your gender, is because that's physically impossible. Because <laughs> like doesn't exist. You know, it's, it's it's logically, physically impossible. There cannot possibly be a right to this. You know, because it doesn't exist. And so the, but all of a sudden under libertarianism, because the material world is all that exists because man is the source of, is the only logical source of his own being, is the only real starting point, again, thanks to Descartes, uh, you know, it's like all of a sudden these things are rights. We are the owners of ourselves. We are not accountable to anybody else. And it rejected that. And so you also see like this rejection of platonic realism. That's you know, again, what, what we started with. It also has implications for like slander and libel laws because under Platonic realism, my reputation is something that truly does exist. It is a is an abstract property attached to my person. Like remember, like when God says, I think it's like the third commandment. He says, you know, you shall not carry my name. He's not an idiot. You know, you, sh you shall not use my name in vain. The word in Hebrew is actually carry. You shall not carry my name in vain. In other words, you're not allowed to use my name to commit sin because if you do, I'm not going to forgive you. Which is like what he actually says and he's not an idiot so he's not talking about like saying oh my god or whatever he's actually saying like don't sin in my name because you destroy my reputation and why because i have a right to my own reputation it exists in me and so you have no right to that and so the uh you know your rep under christianity your reputation really does exist and it really is scarce you know it only exists with you it doesn't ex just exist in other people's mind like it does under nominalism. Again, this is where that comes from. This idea that your reputation only exists in the other, in the minds of everybody else is only true if nominalism is true, and it's not true if Platonic realism is true. So, you know, the, actually, these philosophies really do make a difference. They show up, you know, in like how you know how these laws actually exist. So that's why when the Lord says, you know, you shall not slander, you shall not bear false witness, and all that, these are all sins. You don't have a right to do to do them. It's like that is not compatible with libertarianism that says, ah, your reputation just exists in the minds of other people. You don't have a right to that. They're like, these are really, really different. <laughs> you know, and like these are not compatible. And so when we're, you know, so when we're going into this and we're saying, you know, what is the, the, uh, the, th the actual thing that exists? So, so this is like uh, framing the discussion now. Uh, now that we're an hour, an hour in, Oops, I said it was going to be 10 minutes. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, that that's... Uh, it's a long uh, 10 minutes. <laughs> you ever watch Dragon Ball Z at all? Uh, I know, right? Frieza, the Navic will blow up in five minutes. <laughs> you know, it's like three episodes later. <laughs> anyway, so uh, basically what, what we're, uh, you know, what's being discussed and what's not, because I can hear the objections already. It's like, 
what's being discussed is the scope of rights and duties that actually exist and what these things actually consist of. What's not being discussed is how you know these rights and duties are enforced and what the punishments uh, for violating them ought to be ought to uh, consist of. Yeah, and uh, on the, the latter point, you know, like I said at the outset, I readily admit that there's you know, a ton of overlap and compatibility on the second issue. It's like the, uh, you know, but but uh, but I'll be you know, very different reasons why. It's like what I'm concerned with is what is enforceable, not how it's actually enforced. And so the uh, the common objection I get was, oh, so you think you need a state for all of this? And it's like. Okay, that's beside the point. And it's irrelevant to whether a right is, you know, how a state enforces it, whether like through prohibition or taxation or regulation or something like that. It's just a question of prudence, not a question of do they have the right to do anything about it in the first place. So the, uh, you know, the idea, so like when we say, okay, so you say like drug addiction is not a right, you know, uh, okay, well, how you, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to, uh, you know, have a blanket prohibition? Are you going to slap some taxes and regulations on it? You know, those are very different things. You know, it's, it's like, who's going to do it? Uh, is it, uh, you know, the state is a monopoly on violence or is it a more decentralized system like the family? You know, where, you know, whose right is it actually? And does a right actually exist in the first place? It's like, those are like, those are prudential questions. Those are questions of prudence. Like, is it a, you know, again, resources are scarce and we have to optimize them. So, you know, it makes a difference. So like maybe prohibition is really counterproductive and we don't actually want to do that. That's a prudence question. That's not a justice question. The, 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 the incompatibilities I'm honing in on are questions of justice, not of prudence. And they're related, but, not, but they're not the same. And so the, uh, in order to even have the prudence question, you have to first have the justice question of what rights exist in the first place? What duties exist in the first place? You know, libertarians will say there are no unchosen duties. You know, those don't exist because I'm the owner of my own being. I'm the source of my own being. I'm my own God, uh, basically. And so unchosen duties don't exist. Only rights exist. And so and, I'm, and my duty is only to myself. So, you know, I don't have no real, you know, duties to, you know, to anything besides myself. And, you know, that's very different than saying, you know, God actually exists, he's the owner of everything, you're a steward and you have a duty to him and to your neighbors by extension. You know, like those are very, very different, uh, you know, si very different systems of justice. And to say that like the, the latter has way more rights and duties that are, that are truly enforceable. And doesn't matter how you enforce them, you know, we're not saying how you enforce them yet. We're just saying that they are enforceable in the first place, somehow. And whereas libertarians will say, no, it's like sex, you know, sex work is a, is a right. You have no right to enforce anything against me that, you know, in the first place, I own myself. I own my own body. If I want to, you know, do what, if I want to mutilate it or I want to do whatever with it, you know, it's like, it's like, I, that's my right. If I want to smear my body in mayonnaise, take pictures and sell them door to door to children, that's my right. <laughs> and you have nothing to say. And there's nothing that you can do to stop me. And it's like, uh, no, no, that's not true, actually. That's like that, again, that very much depends on whether these, uh, you know, these uh, uh, philosophies like nominalism, materialism, naturalism, et cetera, et cetera, are all true. It, 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 that, it, it hinges on that. And, but for the sake of the discussion, this is not what Christianity believes, nor is it what, what it's compatible with. Now, the, uh, 
And basically you have to, what, what happens is remember we said that uh, the one area of agreement is that you have to have a first principle. You know, any system that's true has to have a first principle. And so we have two contradicting first principles. One that says that man is the source of his own being. And the other says that you know, the logos is the source of all being. And they yield radically different results, you know. And uh, you know, all you know is, is, is it that all rights are reserved to the individual man, or are all rights reserved to God? And the, I mean, these are yeah. You know, all of a sudden, you get very potential. You get a very real, potentially legally binding, unchosen obligations to God and fellow man. If you know, if uh, you know, if Christianity is true. If it's not, then you know, it, then there, then it's not. And it's not, and it's not like, oh, this is just like your feelings, which by the way, is like where Kant was coming from. It's that this uh, faith, again, it's like, oh, it's just like your feelings or whatever, and you have no right to enforce that on other people. It's like, no, all of a sudden it's like, this thing's either true or false, and it makes a causal difference to reality. And so, you know, it's kind of like math. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's not like, oh, if you don't believe in math, you know, tough luck. You're just wrong and delusional. Facts don't care about your feelings. You can disagree with the uh, with uh, God all you want. It doesn't change anything. If it's true, if it's false, that changes quite a lot. And property rights are no longer absolute under Christianity because man is not the owner of himself. He's a steward only, and steward has and 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 as a steward, he has a very real obligation to do his very best with what he's given. Remember the parable of the talents. You know, if you're a uh, really big brain Christian, you know, you've got five talents, you will look out. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a big gift. You know, if you're like some sub ADIQ atheist, you know, you got one talent, you know, you still owe one back. You know, it's like you got to do the best you can with what you have. There's a big difference right there between that and libertarianism where you're only accountable to yourself. And there's there's no right to sin, you know, because properly speaking, sin doesn't exist. You know, something has to exist in the first place for you to even potentially have a right to it. Whereas under libertarianism, you know, it's like there's not really such a thing as sin, you know, because that is that presumes metaphysics. <laughs> so it's like these, uh, you know, this is where I say these are not actually compatible ideologies. You know, the, the uh, you know, because they, they have fundamentally different first principles and worldviews attached to them. And so while they might, while, you know, libertarians and Catholics might both agree that, you know, prohibiting sex work is probably counterproductive and shouldn't be done, they do so for different reasons. Like the libertarian believes you shouldn't do it at all in the first place because that, you know, person has a right to their own body and they're the owner. And so there's no enforceable violation of anything in the first place. Again, whereas like the Catholic believes that no, there's no right to sin, but if we do, but if we do a blanket prohibition, it's likely to make the situation much worse. Yeah, you know, we're going to get greater sins, and so that's a violation of prudence, but not of justice. And so, you know, and you do have quite a lot of overlap there, you know, just on the prudence question. But you know, the, but that, they're for different reasons. They're not for you know, and ultimately these are going to be incompatible. And so, a a, a Christian society and a, and a libertarian society are ultimately going to be very, very different if taken to their actual logical conclusions. Okay, okay. so... Now it's not discussion. <laughs> yes. So I want to start out with some questions based upon all of that. And we're going to start out in the... We'll kind of go through things kind of in order. I'll start with kind of questioning some of the philosophical uh, claims and, and uh, presuppositions that, that you put out there. Uh, so 
I want to ask, you know, in, in the ideas that you put out there about sin and that there's no right to sin and sin doesn't exist, darkness is a uh, privation of light, etc. Um, and I, I can kind of understand where you're coming from with that. All um, things came into being through him. You know, that's, so, that's where that comes from. You know, all things, yeah, all, all things created through him, the Logos. Um, does freedom exist, and, and specifically, does human free will exist? And God, the Calvinist is asking this, but <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the idea that free will, basically, what we said about that earlier. Let me go, get back to that slide. What free will actually exists of? Well, what is the free part? You know, will of the will, human will, obviously exists, but what does the freedom part mean? Again, the freedom part is that you don't, you are free to choose not to exist. You know, there is that which exists that you can choose, that is God, that is his ways. And then that which does not exist is you're able, you don't have to choose him. But he gives you this ability to choose non-existence, which is, again, why, you know, the wages of sin is death. Why, you know, it's why it's yes, always yes, likely to death and slavery, you know, it's, yes. as, it's increasing, increasing privation, you know, deprivation, really. You know, but, you're, the, but the, but the freedom to choose to turn away from the light and to turn away from existence and to head toward non-existence and the absence of light you know it's like i agree when i turn my light bulb off that the in this room i'm in that darkness sets in now the darkness isn't there but but i have a choice to exist in that darkness mm -hmm. so uh, the uh, but the idea is do you have a right to some a property right to something called darkness and the answer is, well, there's there's no such thing, actually. But you, Again, you, what, what, what I'm saying is, uh, to me, this is a bit of a semantical thing, right? Like, you're saying you don't have a right to something that doesn't exist, but I'm saying what exists that I have, a, that humans technically have a right to, in a sense. Now, we need we also need to define what rights are, and we'll get to that. It's a moral but, um, but you have, because we have free will g given to us by God, we have not not a right to something that doesn't exist. We have a right um, and the ability to choose to not follow God. Mm -hmm. Now, 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 we are not free from the consequences of not following God. And, you know, there are many libertarians and libertines who will, you know, re when you suggest that, you, you know, listen, you can sin. You're not yeah. free from the consequences of your sin. I agree with you. People are going to. Oh, that's also true. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're going to face the, con you know, you will reap what you sow. And and I, I believe that. But, you know, people are definitely, you know, while they're not, they are not free from the consequences of their sin, but they are, in a sense, free to sin. They're, they're free to, they're, they are free to turn away from God. Yeah, you're free to sell yourself into slavery. Um, you know, is that freedom? That sounds a weird way of, of, of uh, comprehending freedom if you, say, if you say, oh, I'm free to die, or like, I'm free to sell myself into slavery. How can you, well, this, like, this leads, like an well, this, this leads into my, into my next question, which is, is, is a choice that is made, you know, that is not made freely, you know, if, if someone only has the choice to do what is good, is it a moral choice? Uh, yeah, because you can, because the reason why the only thing that actually exists is good, you know, and non-existence is evil, you know, is that that's what that actually is, in fact. And so you can choose non-existence, but 
it's non-existent. It's, it's like you, you can again, you can't have a right to something that doesn't exist. It's like this, it's the same reason why you, you know you don't have a right to change your gender. It's impossible. You know, it's like it, you cannot physically do it, and so there can't possibly be a right to it, because in order to to uh, for a right to something to you know to exist, the thing itself let's, has. Let's, to let's let's define because we we've used the term a few times now. Let's let's define what rights are because we, we need to we need to. I would say moral claim the control. definition there. Well, that, a moral that, claim of control. So the uh, you know to, uh, control over something like my body, my property, you know, my phone. It's like it's like these things I have a moral claim to. So that you're presupposing several things. One, the something itself exists. The two, that morality exists. You know, those and uh, and that three, that it's possibly to you're, it's possible to control these the thing itself. So three things, three things you need. And so if there's no such thing as morality, there's no such thing as rights. And so and you know that's kind of basic for a Christian. You know, there's some similar to my my definition of, of rights would be things that you have um a a claim to i don't know if they necessarily have to be property for i mean you can you can describe them in in, in ways of property but for example i have a right to uh not be murdered <laughs> and and so that's that's a right you now you said that's a right to my body but then you're kind of using a libertarian uh yeah to, uh, if you really want to go get strict with this, the biblical definition is not something you have so much as something you inhabit. So like the idea of righteousness needs to be in the right. So you are, so when we say you are within your rights, is like you are within the right. There's this dimension called this, there's this abstract dimension called rightness. And to be outside of it is wrong. And you and but uh, you can only inhabit it if you choose it. And so you get, but you can choose not to inhabit this dimension called uh, rightness, and so or righteousness. And so the uh, you know it's a property that's abstract to yourself, but it's like it's like an abstract dimension that you that you can or you cannot inhabit, and based on your choice. And so the uh, like whether so to say someone is within his rights is to say he is within the right. And you know the right is right, the wrong, and the left is always wrong, of course. <laughs> and so the, uh, but yeah, so that's actually the biblical definition. Is it's not something you you have so much as something you inhabit. And you and when you see like guys like Thomas, like Saint Thomas Aquinas, talking about it, he's using the biblical definition. And whereas in common parlance, we kind of use it the other way. And the other way is not wrong. But it's like it's not quite as accurate as you know what the Bible is saying, what you know the saints are saying, and not and uh, and what like the Greeks would be meaning by it. Hmm. Yeah, no, so, and I, I, this gets to you know another question, which and I'm I'm trying to not jump around too much here, but I'm trying to kind of go in a natural progression. Go ahead. So. I agree with you on the idea of what biblical rights are, and I agree with you on a lot of the metaphysics and, 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 and framing that you, you put out there. A concern I have, and, and why I would then, from this concern, why I think libertarian is libertarianism is useful and I think it's also needed, is that, and the I'm not saying the Bible doesn't answer this, but there is a question of how do we 
tend to the non-believers? How do we deal with those yes, who are? Yes, the question. Yeah. So how do we how do we deal with those who who have not accepted uh, the truth, even though, even though the truth is written in their heart? And I think, you know, uh, I don't think there's anyone who truly doesn't believe God exists. If you really got down to the deepest fiber of their being, yeah. Um, even Satan believes God exists. Uh, so I mean, it's like if, if you're really going to be rationally consistent, you kind of got to be like Nietzsche and. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like if it really is all if you know, God, God is, is dead, and so am I. <laughs> yeah, it's like if it's all meaningless, what the fuck are you still doing here? So right. It's like okay, so clearly on some level you don't actually believe it's all meaningless. Right. Uh, but there, like, but there, there are people even, that are even to say, oh well, I'm just going to subjectively create my own meaning. Well, that too is meaningless. You know, it's it's like if you're if you're really going to be rationally consistent about this, you kind of gotta you know off yourself or just like live like a total hedonist like. You know, those are like the really the only two options, and the latter one is actually less consistent. It's, it's begging the question. Like, there's no meaning, yeah. but I will create my own meaning, even though there is no meaning. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, like, what do you do about like non-believers? That, again, that's a prudential question. Uh, it's like you, there, there are yeah, it's a, a real discussion that you can have, and uh, I think what I think one way we would know for sure is you know if you actually implemented a full-blown private property society well because again like we said if you know materialism and nominalism are true and these things really are just titles there's no reason to expect that you know christianity might have a tactical strategic advantage whereas like because if these things are actually platonic realism is true which is again funda a fundamental philosophy to christianity or it's the one that christianity holds to be true that these things really are abstract properties that have a causal impact on reality, which, by the way, all of my debates with Ace are about this right there, platonic realism versus nominalism. He never quite realized it, but this is where that actually is. When I'm, when I'm saying that these things actually have a causal impact on reality, and he's saying, no, they're not. It's like, how is that possible? There's an is-odd gap. And it's like, no, not necessarily. And uh, this is where those debates all come from. I, I got bored of them eventually. But basically, if... Uh, you know, if Platonic realism is true and these are abstract properties, what you would expect is that a moral society will end up doing much better, much more prosperous, much more peaceful, much more powerful, you know, much more wealthy, etc. you know, based on that causality of goodness. And, you know, whereas the hedonist society is going to like, you know, eat itself in the communism. Really well, this quickly. is why the left hates capitalism because they, yeah. they know that they they know that capitalism know wouldn't sustain their their uh, their lifestyles and their values. Yeah, I mean they're a parasite. They're gonna lose. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, so they need a little bit of capitalism to to survive on though. So it's like it's like this love hate thing. Uh, like they, they they need to like put the little ghost of capitalism in the machine just to, just enough to make it work a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's like the Mar what Margaret Thatcher says, event, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and uh, it's, you know, I think uh, Deng Xiaoping, he's the guy who came in after Mao, he said, you know, we need to at least have some rich people before we can kill them. <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, this is after the Great Leap Forward, which, you know, like decimated, you know, China's population. It's like, uh, yeah, clearly this, you know, acts of evil cause greater evil, like poverty and famine. Declining population is bad for society? What? Imagine why. It's like, you mean, you mean that, you know, killing 40 million women is going to have problems, is going to cause problems for, you know, sexually deprived no, men? No, 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 Andrew, Andrew, the left loves women, but they can't <laughs> tell you what they are. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Get like, so yeah, it, obviously this stuff has real, you know, uh, practical problems to it. And if you really want to take this, th these things to their logical conclusion, it's like, you could say that, you know, the, the, the left-wing liberal materialist libertarian society is going to be a, like a clusterfuck and a disaster, you know, and what's actually going to win out if, private property really is observed is the Christian one as if, again, if platonic realism is true and if abstract properties really do exist and, you know, major tenets of libertarianism, like, you know, intellectual property and stuff like that are actually false. <laughs> it's like, those are big, big implications that, you know, cannot be ignored. So what do you do about it? Well, okay, eventually the Catholics are going to end up running the planet. And it turns out they're already like, the, the world's largest landowner, or at least they were until McDonald's came along. McDonald's is now the, <laughs> the largest landowner in the world as of like 2009. But for like the 2000 years preceding that, it was the Catholic church. <laughs> so it's like, actually, it seems like it's working out. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, expectation is actually meeting the theory, which is kind of, you know, which really tough to explain if, unless you're a, uh, really tough to explain from a materialist point of view. Because you, because you told me all of this stuff was bullshit and it, like it doesn't work, it's not real. So what the heck, how come it, How come they're succeeding so well? And they've, you know, they've been around for 2000 fucking years. You know, it's like, and they're like a single organization that really hasn't changed at all, at, you know, since not basically the beginning. <laughs> and so, you know, how in the world is that possible? Well, maybe they're onto some per, sort of permanent. One, one, and, and, and the one major change they did in the last, uh... Century was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, it was like the yeah Vatican II. We won't go there. Yeah, so it's like it's like that's uh yeah it's its own that's its own uh, podcast. We won't go there. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, if, so, you, if you want to listen to if you want more information on that, we're going to put some links in this in the uh, discussion that kind of start to address that because this is where the you know the Catholics decided that you know it's looking kind of dangerous. You know, what if we made a few compromises with the world and. Yeah, we're not going to change any doctrines officially, but we're going to like change how we talk about these doctrines so that it kind of reflects the error. And well, compromising always worked out well for ancient Israel, didn't it? I mean, I know, right? <laughs> I can't imagine how this could possibly go wrong. And uh, was... anyway, but uh, you know... so so yeah, bringing back to the topic at hand with with libertarianism, where I think this comes into play with Christianity, where I don't think two are incompatible is yeah. that I'm not building libertarianism on, I guess, like a secular foundation of self-ownership being the end-all be-all or the presupposition. Really, I, I view libertarianism more as a, a answer to a question. And, and the question that, that I think that needs to be answered um, is when is the use of force justified? And I think that the only consistent answer biblically and using logic and i think you know again no, you and i agree these are all connected because uh, the bible comes from god and and rationality and logic and morality come from god so they all end up saying the same answer but i think that the answer to when is the use of force morally justified is that it is morally justified in the enforcement of basically property rights and in the enforcement of uh yeah you know you're you're you know if someone is committing aggression against someone else uh whether that's you know violence upon their body or uh a violation of their of their property 
that is when the use of force is justified and libertarianism yeah. seeks to um, elaborate on how this plays out in the real world and you know then there's also i guess like the second element would be the instruments of civil governance that we use to enforce property rights what should they look like so there's a there's that's like a, a question that's different yes. than a justice yes. question there, there's the what is what is normative and there's the praxeological how do we how do we enforce what is normative yeah and the uh and what, how i respond to that is this is kind of what i said over here is that it's a question of it's like okay you can only aggress against people's rights and duties assuming that they exist and so that's kind of, you know when you say this like okay you're not allowed to aggress against people's property rights. Well, that's kind of begging the question, what are those rights? You know, what are those duties? What are the, what's the full scope of what they consist of? Because like a libertarian will say, there's no such thing as unchosen duties and that aren't continuously chosen. And whereas that's not what a Christian will say. As like, these are very different things. And like, they well, do hold on. Like, I, I, might, I, I might disagree with you on that, but I think that we, we need to define what well, you yeah, mean by a positive I mean, duty because... Is, is there a positive duty in terms of what God requires of of us based upon his written and moral decrees? Yes. But that is positive duties insofar as the obligations we have from our vertical relationship with God. I think on the horizontal field, when it comes to... Them, you know, it's not like... It's not if I don't have a relationship with God that all of a sudden these rules don't apply to me. Like, no, no, no. no. Everyone, everyone has a relationship with God whether they choose to or not. I, I'm not saying there's a choice in that. We all have that positive obligation from God in terms of those moral duties. And God um, enforces them on us just by his very essence of again, being. Because if we, don't fulfill, if we don't fulfill those moral obligations, we're in sin, and we know what happens when you sin. So you and yeah, I are in yeah, perfect that's agreement That's actual there. abstract property that you either partake of or you don't. And, right. that, and, and it has real causal consequences to reality. Yes, yes and I agree. And so the, the idea that just because you don't believe in it, well, it's like, that doesn't matter. It's like you can choose not to believe in math or believe that math is racist and you're, you're just delusional and wrong. It doesn't matter. Right. Well, this is why I said before, you are free to choose to reject God, but you're not free from the consequences of what happens when you reject God and you reject his commands. But I think... But what, what, what I, the distinction that I think is important to make here is that although God, by his very nature, enforces those positive duties and obligations, humans, I do not think, but, but based both well, on what we see yeah. in the Bible and what we see and, and what we can logically derive as consistent, yeah. is humans cannot enforce a positive obligation on another human that came from God. God enforces that, not people yeah, the question is like what is a just law what does that you know what makes a law just or unjust and that is the, the idea that it comes from natural law is so a human so natural law kind of gives you like the broad abstract principle whereas human law says okay here's how we're actually going to recognize and implement that you know and that we recognize there is a right not to be murdered you know but uh if if someone is you know, are we going to give them the death penalty or, you know, 10 years in jail or a pat on the back? <laughs> you know, it's like it's, it's like how a human law actually approximates that is well, and, uh, and, you know, very different. And, 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 I'll, so, and I'll meet you in, like pretty yeah. far in the middle here, which is that I agree that that we should model our laws after natural law, after God's mm -hmm. law. And I think that we should have a law, so to so, so to speak, against homosexual marriage. 
But I don't think that law should be enforced by violence. I think rather market law, you know, capitalism, <laughs> you know, and, and in applying and a, a massive, dis a, you know, forces, the, the market forces of disincentivizing that which is sinful, which is what the market would do, because there really is nothing productive that can come from a homosexual pairing. It, it yeah. produces no children. It, pro it produces nothing of, of benefit to society. Now, would we, yeah, now would, we, would we, the only question that I, I seek to answer yes. as a libertarian is, should we, is this a law where we should use the civil authorities and wield the sword to stop them or is this an or is this something that that the law needs to be enforced through uh you know th through something outside of those those civil authorities well i mean let's, let's i mean let's say like let's take it uh easier one like again this is a prudential question that 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 something needs to be enforced against in the force in the first place is kind of begging the question that this is something you're you're outside of your rights in so the idea that you know a homosexual, you know, homosexuality is outside of people's rights and it needs laws against it to disadvantage it is begging the question that this thing is actually outside of people's rights in the first place, which is the, the thing I'm concerned with because libertarians would say, no, you're you're within your rights if you want to, you know, sodomy is completely within your rights as long as you're consenting to it. Right. Well the libertarians uh, so are concerned with libertarians are concerned with the use of force. So in the idea yeah. of of, of in, in the civil sense, in, in, in the civil sense, you you have a right to do things that are not violating the civil rights of others. But but again, this is why I think I think I think having laying things out in terms of vertical and horizontal relationships is, is very important. And then looking upon those, you know, ver the horizontal relationships and going, when can we use force and when can't we? And I don't think it's begging the question so much as it is recognizing when when violence is justified and when it when it isn't. And it's not that we're saying someone has a right to do a thing that doesn't exist in terms of, you know, gay marriage and which is sin. I'm not saying people have a right to sin. I'm saying people have a right to not have violence be initiated against them just for the act of not following God's command, yeah, insofar as they're not uh, violating, you know, the rights of other people as they do so. Yeah, but those are all begging the questions. Again, it's like you can so only where's, have where's a the right to something that exists. Uh, that the idea that you know there is a, uh, a a right of others or what that actually what the, that that set actually consists of. Your you know those values are actually in the subset. You know what I mean? It's like the. Uh, you, know, you you actually have to start at the first principle of where these things come from in the first place and if because if they don't come from if there's no place they actually come from then they don't actually exist and you can't have a right to something that doesn't exist so that that but, is but, the, but, uh, so this is where this goes back to my first that's question, the crux right? of my Which argument is, is that, is that it, it's only just to use force against people you know when they are outside of their rights when they are not inhabiting that dimension of rightness you know when the when they are outside of their rights, that's when it's okay to use force, you know, prudently, of course. But right, right. But, know, but the, here's, the, uh, so here's but where we disagree: is, is is you're saying they don't have a right to sin, and I'm saying it's not that they have a right to sin; it's that they have a they they have a right to use their free will to turn away from God. It's not that they have a right. So it's not it's not that I have a right to the darkness that yeah, me turning my life. It's not that I have a right to the darkness that 
happens when I take the light away. It's just that I have a right to go to the light switch and turn it off, or I have a light a right to cover my eyes up and and not yeah. look at the lights. But you can't say, oh, like like there was, you know, like some light out that came in from outside or whatever, you know, violated my right to this darkness. You know, I wanted this, you know, darkness. It's a thing. It's like, no, it's not actually a thing. It's like no, it's more like it's more like we don't. It's they have a right. It, like if they're sitting there, closing their eyes because they don't want to look at the light. We don't have a right to go up to them and f and use violence to force their eyes open. Yeah, and the uh, <clears throat> because you know they they have a right to like their own to their own body, you know, and to close their own eyes. There's nothing about that that is outside of their rights. However, it's like I want to you know have another man's dick inside my asshole. Uh, you know that is I am outside of my rights. I don't have that right and you know, the other guy doesn't have the right to, you know, put it in me. It's like, that's, you know, there, there, you know, I am like, both of us are definitely outside of our rights with that because that's sin, you know, there can't, you know, it's like, just because I own my own body doesn't mean I can do whatever the hell I want with it. And, you know, libertarians already recognize this kind yes. of like, I can't use it to hurt other people. So clearly there's a limit. And it's just a, a question of where's the actual line, you know, and the, whereas the, uh, Again, if, if I'm the source of my own being, the I'm only accountable to myself and I can do whatever I want. Whereas if I'm a steward of creation and I'm accountable to God and all the all rights came into existence through him and you know, a right to and sin wasn't one of them because you know it, it doesn't exist. So uh, that it's like then I can't have it, I can't do it. You know, it's like I'm definitionally outside of my rights and forces on the table then. It so, would so be a legitimate uh, response to that. Sure. So, so I get what you're saying. I, I think that if the project that I was pursuing was taking pure secular libertarianism, which is a round peg, and the square hole of Christianity, and trying to force the, the, the round peg into the square hole, that doesn't work. And, yeah, and like right all that out. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, what I what I think you're getting wrong when you criticize Christian libertarianism is that I think Christian libertarianism is its own subset. It's not secular libertarianism. It's rather saying, listen, here are the things libertarians get right. They get right. It's it's not about rights in the they're trying to ultimate, ultimate biblical godly God, metaphysical God, sense it's about, it's about civil, rights civil rights and what and civil what authorities, authorities can and can't do so it's, yeah. it's taking it's they're, they're they're having a little bit of a performative contradiction because they're trying to have the conclusions of libertarianism which are particular to these other philosophies uh like you know like materialism nominalism etc and they're trying to have that, but they're trying to use Christian uh, presuppositions to get there, and that doesn't actually work. What uh, so like, the only the only conclusion that I'm that I'm trying to arrive at is, uh, I mean, listen, you and I b both agree that uh, it's sinful to, if you were born a man, to try to do any sort of altercations chemically or physically or both to your body to then claim that you are now living as a woman. We would we'd say it's yeah. sinful for a man to lie with a man, a woman to lie with a woman, or it's, you know, it's sinful to abandon your child or for your child or for a child right. not yes. to take care of, you know, a good loving parent, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that took right. care of them. There, there, know, there are many like, things there there are many things that are sinful that, that you and I agree on that mm -hmm. a lot of libertarians would be like, you know, well, 
that, that there's nothing wrong with it. Not only do they have a right to it, there's nothing wrong with it at all. You and I both agree there's something yeah. wrong with it. The Christian libertarian is not trying to do anything in relation to calling those things that are wrong any less wrong. They're simply trying to answer the question of, based upon what we know about civil governance from God's revealed law, both in scriptures and with, you know, because you, you, you're, you're not like some cringe Protestants that I run into who go, you can, you can only use scripture alone and you can't use your reason and you can't use philosophy. We, we, we view reason and philosophy as part of God's revealed order and that these things are not in conflict. They're actually the same thing, you know, compatible. Yeah, and, and, let me try and to so, rephrase what I think you're saying. Uh, you're, you're saying that Christian libertarians are not making a just, you know, they agree on the justice, part, you know, parts, you know, wholeheartedly. It's like they, they're saying that the reason I call, I still call myself a libertarian is that this is the best, you know, of the uh, ideologies on the market right now. There's really only three of them. There's constitutional conservatism, progressivism, and libertarianism. Of those three that are actually on the market, libertarianism is like the best approximation of where I am as a as a Christian and what I actually believe. So there, in there's definitely that. that there's definitely that element. The second element I would add, and this this is me uh, coming in and and saying specifically libertarian anarchism. And the 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 second element is that I do view uh, anarchism as a a sort of a horizontal description of how the Christian should relate to this world. Because we're told that this world is not our home, that we are citizens of a different kingdom. And so I think that while we are on this earth, we have to view all kingdoms of men as, you know, you know, really idolatrous organizations that are even the best ones are going to end up corrupting God's natural order and end up end up committing idolatry. And I think this is we see this in First Samuel 8. We see this in the example that that Jesus gave us and everything and and you know and you brought it up earlier what Paul said we don't struggle against uh, flesh and blood but against the principalities the authorities the forces of darkness etc why do those things exist why do those principalities and powers and dominions which are classifications of angels why do they exist in the first place if they're not a part of God's natural order it's like see that you know the Catholic and by the also Orthodox conception of why these things exist is that it, they are fallen angels, but the, what was their their purpose before they fell was to guide human rulers, which presupposes that they actually exist in the first place. So it's like the idea that you know humans are supposed to have you know real leaders, real lawgivers, all this all this stuff. These are like this is part of the natural order that God had actually instantiated at the beginning, and instead of following it the way that they were supposed to actually they became idolatrous organizations truly idolatrous you know it's like he, he said that he called out they were going to be idolatrous they're god just, kings you know it's like it's like well, they, they were idolatrous god 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 told samuel that when they asked for a king said they aren't rejecting you they are rejecting me as their king see that's and, that, what that shows is like the, the reason they're asking for a king isn't actually the problem the problem is they didn't want god that they didn't, uh, you know, the problem was they didn't want God's morality to be enforced by a king. They were wanting a king so that they could get away from God's morality, not so that they could do it better. I think that was part of it. I think it was also, they, they, they just they got out of... King, 
is they, they said, hey, we want, they, they wanted it for two reasons. One, because everybody else, we keep being invaded by everybody else's king. So it's militarily efficient. Yeah, they also, want, a king to fight, we want a king to fight our battles for us and, yeah. uh, and to govern Also, us. your sons are a bunch of crooks, Samuel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so we want someone who's going to be our judge. And there's a second reason. So it's like, you know, if we want, you know, if we want a king, so that uh, you know we can you know have better better security, so we can better you know follow the law, and we can have better justice because we know that's what God really wants, and you know that's you know that would have been a okay, but because they want the reason they wanted those kings is like we want to sin, we want to live like the pagans are doing, and like we want to have all this child sacrifice and all that. We don't want to do it God's way, and the king is going to help us be be more efficient in our sin. It's like that's the and uh, like that's the the problem right there. That's what God means when He says you've rejected me, like you've rejected my ways. You know, you're you're wanting a king for the wrong reasons. If you'd wanted a king so that you could be, you know, more loyal to me, that would have been a okay. You know, that's just my facilitator. I've got dozens of those guys. You know, I just, they're I just called, view you know, it as inevitable. Like if if man truly wants to follow God, I don't think he seeks to put a king above him. Now, uh, I, want be, I want to be clear here. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not trying to be cringe, ace-style anarchist where I'm like hierarchies are bad and natural leaders are bad. Like, listen, I, I believe in natural hierarchies and leaders, and and you know, it, it's sort of the, that's what rulers, I think, in the biblical sense are. This is the example that, that Jesus gave. He said, "If you, if any of you seeks to be." First among you, he will be the last. He will be a servant. And, I, and, you know, true rulers are not those who, you know, wield the sword in violence to force compliance and coercion against the subject. Rather, they are wielding the sword outwardly in, in defense and in service to. And, and so, I, I, listen, I believe. Well, that, that's the problem right there is that, you know, hey, it's a dangerous world. These things actually exist. And the uh, the reason I would want a king is that someone who's going to fight my battle so I can go, you know, he can go fight battles for me so I can specialize it being a father. I need to read Hoppe's private production of defense. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> specialization. And by the way, we all know how, you know, production works best. It's monarchy. It's like that. It's like everything you love is built by a monarch, basically. It's a CEO. We call them CEOs today. And it's like, it's one guy in charge. He's got crap loads of power, uh, you know, unto himself. And he makes the decision about which way the right, company goes in production. It's like what he doesn't have is the, the right to initiate violence against the people working for him. I mean, I, other, I, than, other than if they are like, hey, get off my property, and they say, no, fuck you. And then it's like, okay, well, now he has yeah, the right to... Again, that would, you know, be, you know, that would be the reason I want a king, is to make my life, you know, my, it's make it my job of being a good Christian, a good father, a good husband, that much more efficient. It's like, that, that way he can specialize at that, so I can specialize at other things that are more important to me, because I don't know how to fight. You know, it's, it's kind of a problem. I want to be a good Christian but I can't go study like martial arts and combat and weapon systems and, you know, military strategies. I, I don't have the time for that. You know, it's, it's like, I'm, you know, if, again, it's like uh, uh, Hayek's, uh, you know, famous line is like, if everyone's hired in the military, who's growing the food? <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, it's like, we're all dead because we're all starved to death. But it's like, it's like so the, uh, yeah, it's, it's like, we need specialization to these ends to make us better humans. You know, we need as many different day. ways to bomb brown people halfway across the world as we do iPhones. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so the, uh, it's like, again, it's like the proper use of a military is defensive, obviously, because some people are real schmucks. 
You know, it's, it's like, you know, some people are liberals and they want to go and, you know, they, you know, you, re- you brown people really need a king to defend you from the republic, from the evil uh, American republic. It's like, that's a really good reason to have a king is that to defend you from these guys. You know, so it's, it's like, it's like bad guys exist, you know, and, uh, and even then, like, sometimes people make errors. You know, it's like, again, it's not, not just sin that doesn't exist, it's also error. You know, it's like when people, they weren't intending to make a mistake, but they did. You know, like you hit a guy, like you know, a car crash or something like that. You weren't like intending to, you know, like T-bone, a, T-bone someone and kill a small child. It's like, you weren't intending that. You know, your will, what, that's not a sin, it's an error, you know, but, you know, justice still needs to be served one way or the other. Maybe you were being, reckless or maybe you know you were just tired and something like that and you owe civil damages instead of criminal damages you still need a king who can you know or as a to be the judge of a situation like that and that's not that, that is an appropriate use of a third party ju- monopoly on justice because you know if, if uh i think uh you know as i begin into a car accident i think i was in the right and i think and you think you were in the right somebody right, has to be a judge yeah yeah, we need arbitration and you know and if we leave it to ourselves to pick the arbiter we're never going to agree because i'm only going to pick one who agrees with me and you're only going to pick one who agrees with you there needs to be somebody who's you know a third party and the monopoly and it sucks it's going to make it inefficient but it's better than you know this is by the way someone you know you'll get like guys like gene epstein who will be like yeah i, I honestly have no idea how you would get uh somebody to both go to uh, the arbitrator through the arbitrator, and you know, so it's like that, a lot of honest libertarians. Honestly, I'm going to, I'm you going might to say, "Oh, the, here's the problem." I think there's two people who have done really good work on trying to explain this. The problem is they're an anathema to most libertarians, which is Chase Rachels and Stefan Molyneux. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. They both, it's like, and I, I have problems with both of those too, but. Back before they went totally off the wall, they did actually do a good job at sort of like speculating how a free society would get. Yeah, like insurance companies and all that. The problem is not justice. You know, it's like you might be, you know, kind of like rubbing over the problem, but like that's not justice. And but I mean, do we ever get true? Like, I think maybe part of the difference we get. It's like that's the thing in demand. It's like when people like you know. It's like someone T-bones my wife and my kid died or something like that because he's in the car seat. It's like there's no amount of money that really you know makes me feel better. Like I want that guy in jail. He like he was drunk driving or he was you know being really reckless and he was clearly in the wrong. It's like I'm not okay that that guy's still free. But then you know, you're getting society. money, you're paying money out more money now to put this person and house him in jail. Potentially, yeah. And it's like, but you know, that you say like the idea that nothing is going to happen to this guy, or like maybe he get maybe he pays more in car insurance, but she might not have anyway. You know, it's like because again, there's no law that says he has to have car insurance, and you know, and the uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, you know, it's like the, 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 there might be there might legitimately be nothing that happens to him. And this that, might be a like, good a good topic to to, to close yeah, on. And, it's, it's, and, and the, the question I would have, I mean, what are your thoughts on like? 
do you think that you're maybe falling danger to like a nirvana fallacy where like you're expecting outcomes here on earth to be perfect or or near perfect and i guess like my sense of things is that like we live in a fallen world and our best efforts are going to fall short this is why we need a savior this is why jesus is going to come again and, you know and I, I think that libertarianism is sort of and christian libertarianism specifically is saying listen we could, we could seek the seek perfect, perfect outcome and perfect justice here on earth, but not only is that not possible, but we are we see throughout history that when we try to seek that out and we try to wield the sword in pursuit of that, everything goes horribly wrong. And we create more victims and we create more injustice because the people we entrust to do that you know, maybe maybe listen, you get lucky once in a while. I well, the, okay, the, well, the, because like this, when I say okay, the, the, specifically the premise that oh, when we've tried this, it's gone horribly wrong, and I would say, well, actually, if you look back at history, when we've tried this, it went wonderfully correct in like a it's spectacularly correct. You know, it's, it's like you know, it's like if you understand, like okay, you know, real. Uh, it's like you know, the, the history of the West really begins at the fall of the Roman Empire. You know, in the in the late five hundreds. You know, and at that time, like humanity was like, you know, to give you an idea how shitty the situation was, we were like brushing our teeth with urine because the ammonia is a bleaching agent. The ammonia in urine is a bleaching agent. And, you know, it's, and uh, like a thousand, you know, like 1500 years later, we're talking on StreamYard. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like when we had, when we started with Christian monarchy, you know, the system that, you know, theor theoretically, this is the correct model of Christian governments is a, you know, kind of like a Christian monarchy that is subservient to the church that started roughly like 450 ish with King Clovis. And when that started, all of a sudden we're going, we start going on like a parabolic trajectory and it really like, like right around, like we had like kind of a, a, uh, a long extended winter kind of in the sixth century, which really set us back because when, when, when long extended winters happen, you know, the, uh, it's, you know, it's a miniature ice age. When that happens, food supply contracts, population contracts, disease spreads everywhere because you have lower calories, less immune system, predatory diseases get you, et cetera, et cetera. Then we had Attila the Hun kill half of Europe, <laughs> literally half. I mean, he was Hitler before. It's like 11% of the, uh, you know, planet's population was killed by Attila the Hun. All in the West, all concentrated where we were. That collapsed the economy. That set us back again. And but once we really kept, you know, we kept at it, we kept our kings going, we kept uh, the language alive, et cetera, et cetera, through the Catholic Church. If, you know, you want to read the, uh, you know, how the Catholic Church built Western civilization by Tom Woods, excellent book. You know, he gets into some of this. And, you know, once we really like, okay, we have no more like, you know, civilization catastrophes that were not caught, they were not relevant to us, like we didn't cause them at all, you know, right around like, the 9th, 10th, 11th, not 9th, but uh, you know, really the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, we start getting parabolic. <laughs> you know, like we get the invention of science, art, uh, you know, philosophy, property rights, property rights itself. It's like this time period. It's like we invented that. It's like the Romans had something that was like, you could barely call it property, where it's like, you know, you control it because the party, your party is in power in the Republic. And is the that a function of the Christianity or a function of the monarchy? Both. 
See, I, I, I view it more I as a function of the Christianity and the Catholic Church, and I don't. I think the monarchy serves more of a, a backhand role at best. And the reason is because we, and the reason that's not true is we actually have a comparison: Eastern Christianity, where monarchy never really took over, and you always had dictatorship. And the problem, and so what they, the difference between monarchy and dictatorship is. Well, I mean, I'll grant you that monarchy is better than dictatorship, but I mean. Well, it's like, look what happened. It's like, it's like it was both. It's like the, the but fact monarchy that monarchy also gave birth to democracy. <laughs> uh, not really. It's like that, that's, that, you know, and by the way, once we started with those democracies, we kept Christianity around, but like, what happened? The 20th century happened. <laughs> it's like this thing was a shit show, and uh, you know, we continued with, we with entirely some, kept like, Christianity around, not in the I'm same Catholic, way. The Catholic Church is still 1.3 billion people, but uh, but America know, be, was uh, more of a Protestant uh, experiment, way more than and. Uh, I mean, listen, a, that one there, that one actually is historically debatable because yeah, it, it was Protestants who started it, but. Because of the mass immigration of Catholics, you know, from the rest of Europe, you actually had a very substantial, you know, the Catholic population grew faster than the Protestant population quite a lot, you know, through most of history. And this is where we had a lot of power struggles come from. This is why when they said, you know, the Irish are not welcome, you know, it's like, this is why. It's because they were all Catholic. And that's when that also did the Italians. That's why they say, oh, they're they're not real whites. And, you know, the Irish are not real whites. The reason why is they're Catholic. And they're coming into Anglo, you know, you know, waspy uh, America. And like the you know, so you actually had a large immigration population of you know Catholics coming in basically the entire time. And you know, there was always a notorious power struggle, not to mention like down in South South and Central America, which was like a hundred percent you know Catholic basically the entire time. So it's like the uh, uh, even right there in America, it's a mixed bag. You know, it's not all Protestants, it's not all Catholics, it's a mixed bag. And to the extent that, you know, the Protestants have been in charge, well, okay, you get some, some real problems there. And, you know, we get one, we get one Catholic in and, you know, it, it's like, well, I, I, and he's like, you know, I, I was going to say Joe Biden. <laughs> but basically, what, like the one Catholic got in there is like, all right, we want to curtail the Fed. We want to end the CIA. We're not going to have, you know, bad bit. You know, we're not going to be like trying to provoke a war with Cuba. Yeah, bring the and, troops uh, home and all that. It's like, oh. <laughs> it's like, okay, how'd that work out? And like, but now we have, a, you know, another Catholic in there, Joe Biden. He's destroying the Protestant work ethic through, you know, <laughs> through uh, all this welfareism and, you know, that's, that's wonderful. Now. Might really be the Antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, anyway, the uh, but yeah, it's the uh, uh, like when you see like the real progress happening, it was both the combination of monarchy and Catholicism, you know, you know, Christianity that uh, that really did it. And like this is when you know property rights themselves were invented. You know, this is when si all of the science, every last one of the sciences was founded by like a Catholic monk or a Catholic priest, one of the two. And it's like every single last one of them was, right. you know, they're founded by- It wasn't pure like monarchy, monarchy state control state of everything. There were, you know, like there was, a, there was an invention yeah. of a free market of sorts and an invention of common law and, and restrictions that, that were put on the monarchy. Yeah, that, those all were invented under monarchy. And the, uh, it's like all of that stuff came around because you had a monarchical, monarchical system of government that incentivized it, you know, for better or worse. And the, uh, and I guess, you, like, you know, part of the, part of the 
part of the problem like, here even like with the defining mon monarchical government because i think and i might be guilty of this is you know defining monarchy and not giving enough of a distinguishing definition that sets it apart from just a dictatorship and, yeah and that, that's that's sort of probably a american and protestant uh, the difference is a conception of of the ownership of the state whereas like a dictator he's only dictator as long as he stays alive the moment somebody kills him you know it's like that guy's now in charge you know the, the guy who kills him is in charge and you saw this all throughout the east so you know, the, the, the monarch is still subservient to something, to something above him in a sense. well it's like it's not simply that it's that you can't just kill the monarch and take over you know it's like you don't have a right to that you know and so it's like maybe you can be a come in and be a tyrant in force but people are going to resist you because they they perceive you as illegitimate and it's like you can't just kill your way into power and so like we, we're not going to accept you and that's the difference between dictatorship like the roman style dictatorship you had in constantinople you know where it's like you had we had the reason you know constantinople really fell was that you had 800 years of you know really dictate of like dictators ruling with an ultra high time preference you know for power because the moment they because like the way you got the job was killing the other guys who wanted the job <laughs> and it's like whereas like the uh, in the west where you had like king clovis starting around 450 and his sons it's like you can't just kill king clovis and take the power for yourselves you know the catholic church is not going to you know, we, we don't accept you. Like the people are going to reject right, but, you. They're going to rebel. And you actually saw this. A check, a check against, against the monarchical the power. power. They weren't like the ultimate sovereign, sovereign in that. You know, yes and no. It's also, I mean, it's also that, you know, hey, it's like there's a real ownership there. And whereas you never had that in the East, whereas like the, the, the guy who's in charge is not literally the owner. He can't pass it down to his kids unless he has the physical power to do right. so. Yeah. Whereas like in the West, you actually had that. And that's what gives you the low time preference, you know, that is, you know, what gives you that prosperity because you can defer gratification into the future. You could have lower taxes. You can have fewer wars. You can, uh, you know, you can, uh, by the way, it's like after the war is over, you actually pay down your debt. <laughs> imagine if you can even imagine that, you know, it's like that, you know, taxes never got above 10%. But the reason why, oh, by the way, the reason in the seventh century when Islam spreading across the uh, the, the uh, you know North Africa, the reason why it spread so quickly is that it came with a massive tax cut. You know the, the uh, you know Islam said that you know hey three percent is the most. You ever look so, at the tax rates that the colonists revolted against? I mean, I know, right? <laughs> can we can we go back <laughs> to that, please? <laughs> under, yeah, under Rome it was like thirty. So it's it's, it's like we will fight you to the death and uh, you know because you know because we believe in god oh by the and the enemy's like oh by the way if you accept allah we're going to cut your taxes by like 97% it's like well allah who you say so <laughs> it's, like, it's like well it's like that sounds fantastic that's, that's why it really spread it was that you get you know that if you adopted the new religion you got like a 97% tax cut that, that sounds fantastic absolutely come on in you know this all like guy sounds great and uh that, that was that was why that happened but you only have to like, That's why, like i know your your idea is is more of like private sort of privatized decentralized monarchy and and yeah, the competition that element you know it's the holy roman empire you know if you ever looked yeah. at a map of the holy roman empire you know, it's, it's like hundreds and hundreds of little tiny monarchies, because that's actually how that actually, you know, uh, you know, 
uh, plays out when you look at the incentive structure is that, yeah, you will see some sort of decentralization of, of power kind of naturally. And it's only when you get, you know, the only reason we, uh, that really wonderful system ended. And by the way, like what would happen is if you got a really bad king, what would happen is people would just move to the next guy, you know, because they live pretty close, you know, that border's really close by and they'll just move to the other guy. So it prevents really bad people from, you know, consolidating power. The only reason that it ended up consolidating into Prussia and then G Germany is thanks to Napoleon. So we have the republics to thank for that. <laughs> it's like that, that was that was what you know decided that got all of these you know petty feuding, uh, feuding monarchs to. Uh, wait, wait, wait. It, it, we, we haven't triggered the left enough yet. So what you're saying is the only way to have open borders is to go full monarchy. <laughs> Uh, basically, yeah. <laughs> like, that was actually what happened. Is that uh, you know, whenever you had one monarch that tried to raise taxes too high, people just moved them next, yeah. next door. And you know, it's, it's, and the and you actually had a lot fewer wars that way as well because you know what what well how how did you consolidate power as a king? Well, the way you did it was you know you married the uh, the the you know the daughter of the guy next door. And, and, you know, and so you're so, saying so, so like the reason well, why there was a well, not just yet. Let, let me finish this. So basically, for every single king, his wife and his daughter and his kid, you know, his wife and his mother were basically all foreigners. So it's, it's like it's like his mother was a foreigner. She came from a different place, so his dad could consolidate power, and his wife is a foreigner. She came from somewhere else, so he could consolidate power. So it's like you you actually have a supranational national entity right there, which is. You know that's that's kind of what a corporation approximates. You know because you have shareholders that are from literally everywhere, and the first thing, the first problem any corporation is going to have, you know, like I should say, a corporate state is going to have when they try to go to war is like, am I going to be bombing my shareholders? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like they're they're not going to like that very much, and so that this that it approximate you know a corporation really is the incentive structure of monarchy. We just don't call it that. And the your shareholders are your royal family, which are a supranational body, you know, by nature. And the, whereas your your uh, your regent of the monarchy, that's your that's your C suite, and your uh, as a court, the, uh, the the kings usually don't do the governing and the day to day all that themselves. They have you know servants and regents for that ministers. That's the that's your C suite, and then your customers are your peasants. That's your that's your system of monarchy. That's, a, that's the corporate body right See, there. We, the, the way you describe it, 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 it's almost like you're describing a, you know, quasi-Rothbardian, Hoppian system of, you know, really micro-localized governments that are essentially pr privately created and owned. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you're, you're putting an overlay of Christian monarchy on top of it. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's that I have different fundamental presuppositions about how reality works and they logically lead to something like this and libertarianism it does look really good it gets close but it's like some of the things it does it gets actually completely wrong and those matter and that's why you know this is why my my famous aquatropism argument it you know is i use it to demonstrate how even if you had like ancapistan it would naturally consolidate itself into monarchistan you know moncapistan well, yeah, yeah, I mean, the idea that that a, a truly anarchist society would just result in like no consolidation of people into different little the idea that there areas. isn't the power. 
you know, yeah, it's, it's like, like there's, there's, yeah, 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 that, that is, that is that part is of your archetropism theory that, 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 that I think makes the most sense and, and libertarians have the hardest is, time. Uh, what you need is two with. different price systems for controlling the demand for power because there's actually two demand functions for power. You know, one is at the bottom at the pleb level, the other is at the top at the shareholder level. And you need you need two of them because there's two different systems. Only a corporation does that through one low prices, you know, for services to the people because if it raises prices too much, the other guy is going to outcompete them. And the other one is at the share price for the shareholders because if they, you know, they do a really bad job, he's a fucking leftist, you know, the share price is going to drop. You know, I think Rothbard and, and Hoppe got this right. I mean, they, they say the reason why they never they never talk about corporations though because that really is a monarchy. It's all one guy in control. And they also, and also because of because of uh, nominalism, they think corporations don't exist. It's like it's like those are actually not real entities. You know, they're not a. Uh, that's something that that is state created. Uh, and in a libertarian free market, you're only going to have personal liability because the person is the only actual thing that exists. Whereas a corporation is like a fictitious entity that is you know purely derived by the state and would not exist in a free market due to nominalism because that's the only way these things can actually exist it's you know it's you know the all that actually exists is is a uh, is the material individual humans which are actually unconnected whereas under platonic realism uh, actually these are a, a a one single body united through their incentives and their uh, and so they actually can do that do this they actually can limit their own liability this way they actually can you know form these incentive structures that you know create this and it's because I, it's again it's because i'm coming at it from a very different presuppositions about how reality work in fact works than rothbard and hoppe is and i'm and that that's the real reason why i'm getting different answers than them it's not simply cosmetic it's not i can't go from uh you know their ideas of materialism and nominalism to what i actually believe in it's like those there's a logical disconnect there. Well, so, I mean, that's why I don't, I, I don't get my libertarianism strictly from Rothbard and Hoppe. I mean, I, I try to get, you know, I, 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 and I know you, you'll still disagree with me at the end of all this, like, but I do try to pull my libertarianism from what the Bible says, and I use Rothbard and Hoppe to supplement that. You know, they, they, they had good insights, but I, I would not. You know, I'm, yeah, a, I'm a Christian, Christian first and foremost. And I want to be biblical yeah. first and first foremost. And the, the libertarian or the anarchist part. Capital it, it, C Christian, lowercase l libertarian. Yeah, yeah. But I think that is, I think that that is a compatible, um, or I, I don't know, compatible, compatible is not the right word. I think that it is a logically consistent worldview, even if you would say that maybe it's, I don't know, I guess like, I think it's similar to where you're coming from, but it's emphasizing different, I, I think like I have a, I have a scope where I seek to emphasize the prudential aspects of like rights and government and enforcement more than you're kind of coming at it for more of a, the point what, is, what is, what is like, what exists and, and sort of this whole cohesive tapestry of, 
explaining yeah, reality, reality from, from the top down. Well, what I'm saying is we have two different competing versions of property rights. These are not the same. It's like when we say the word, pro the, the phrase property rights, this is not a one-to-one -one thing. Like it can refer to multiple different systems. It can even refer to like a communist system where it's all, pu <laughs> it's all public property. It's, it's like this idea of property rights doesn't tell you what that actually consists of. And it depends on your presuppositions about how these things, you know, what this you know, phrase property rights actually consists of. And what I'm saying is we have two different uh, competing systems here between libertarianism and Christianity. And, you know, it makes a very big difference, you know, how you structure those things, how, what they're founded upon, because you get very different conclusions. Like, I, would agree. I, I think if you if you take pure secular, secular libertarianism and you just start with self-ownership, that's how you get insane conclusions like Rothbard yeah. saying you can abandon your children and... You can abort the baby if you want, yeah, if you want I, to. Because, exactly. You know, like the, <laughs> again, because like the, you know, the, uh, the mother has a title to her, her own body. She cannot transfer that to the baby, even if the baby is inside her womb, even if the baby has, a, you know, because like the baby has no right to be there because she cannot transfer the title to her body to the well, baby. And, and that's how you get, that's how you get the idea of uh, trans children. And the idea yeah. because they're like, hey, listen, children are self-owners. They have they have complete autonomy. And and so I was getting into arguments with a lot of the left libertarians in the last month or so because I was like, no, children don't have full autonomy. Like that's stupid. Like, who who, yeah. who who believes that children are completely autonomous? Or that like you get like the arguments with Ace where he's like. Uh, the parent may, you know, uh, you know, prevent the child from having sex with a pedophile, but the child would have the right to resist his parents. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, no. you are fucking retarded, no. buddy. If, if libertarianism <laughs> is that, I want no part of it. But I, that's, right, my... that's consistent. It's like the worst part about Ace is how truly consistent it is. He's really like that's like the one guy who's like probably red caught that since Rothbard and Hoppe. Yeah, I think I think Kinsella's probably red hot, red hot, uh, you know, yeah, it's, as well. It's consistent. It's just freaking evil. Well, it's just not, it's, this is not reality. It's like this is not compatible with Christianity, and so it's, it's like you can't say, "Oh, the the kid has a right to have sex with the adult pedophile, with the thirty year old adult pedophile." It's like, no, 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 no. So it's like no, he no, doesn't. No, the child no is not. Um, like it, uh, uh, I think even in a material sense, you would say like the child's not fully developed, and I just don't think you can make a claim to, like if someone's not fully developed, they can't be fully autonomous. Like no, this is, of course not. And that, and that's the uh, but it's like even then it's like you're you're assuming that there's no positive duty going both ways. You know what I mean? So it's like the child has an obligation to be productive for like basically you know his adult his entire adult life. And so that he can be able to protect, to take care of his uh, parents when they get older. There's like that natural circle of life that, you know, the parents take care of the child when the child is young and needs to be taken care of. And, you know, in the circle of life and when they finish, you know, when their parents are retiring, they're too old to work now and, and yet they're still alive. You know, someone needs to take care of them. That duty naturally falls to their children. And, you know, there's a natural, there's a natural circle of life there that, you know, that the children have a, that uh, you know each the parent and the child is having reciprocal responsibility to observe. It's not just like oh they can choose not to. No 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 no. They they it's like well, those are enforceable duties. Well, and, they, and you need this sort of cultural cohesion and that sort of stability and that that you need those positive 
obligations yeah. I mean, for society to to function and to continue. And I, this is why I believe, like libertarianism, if it was fully embraced, would either lead to the destruction of society or would lead to a completely Christian society, because the Christian incentives and positive obligations are the only ones that could make libertarianism work. You're gonna have the Christians owning everything. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like either the uh, basically either it's such a shit show that the communists are owning everything because the people are seeing this chaos and they're crying out, please just give us a leader, anybody to put this shit down. It's like they is like because again, they want a government. It's like give unto us a king. It's like they they want the they want the government. They they want that dictatorship. So like all republics, all democracies, always in the dictatorship. Every kind, no exceptions. Some do it faster than others, and some do it slower than others. But every single time, same result, because the people want it. And the question is, is that guy, that one guy who finally comes, is he going to be like a whack job Stalin, or is he, or Hitler, or is he going to be like, you know, Richard the Lionheart? You know, it's like, we could really hope it's like the, it's like Richard the Lionheart or Charlemagne. It's like, God, you know, that would be wonderful, but like, we haven't gotten that lucky recently. It's been Stalin and Hitler. You know, it's, it's these, uh, you know, these, or, or even worse, it's like, not, okay, maybe not worse, but like, it could be, you know, FDR or Lincoln. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like they're, they're, these guys are pretty bad. It's like, even like the good, even the you know, good ones are still pretty bad. It's like, uh, you know, we, like, yeah, we have to say, to say hey, if, if this libertarianist thing really gets, you know, it gets going, if the chaos really gets going, People will demand a dictator come in to put that shit down. Or and they always do every or time. Heroes, or heroes, or heroes will rise and lead people into better ways of. Leaders will rise and lead people into, you know, in the Christian sense. I mean, I think of this in like the, uh, the the Tolkienian sense. You know, I mean, it's what Tolkien thought. He thought that, you know, he was sort of someone who said, "I lean towards anarchy," but also he was like, "But." From anarchy, monarchs kind of rise up and lead people towards, you know. Yeah, I mean, when Rome was, yeah, when Rome was falling and this thing's a shit show, and it's like the the republic can no longer truly. Oh, it's not even a republic anymore. It's now a dictatorship and an empire. You know, the the dictators can't even consolidate power outside of Rome anymore. You know, so this is when King Clovis marches in with his army, and he's and uh, you know, that guy was also a fucked up character, but he was still a monarch. And uh, his family was awful, but uh, you know it was still better than the alternative. And because uh, the alternative was like Roman dictatorship, and we know how that's been working out. It's been a, a real shit show. And you know this, you know Clovis guy comes in, and uh, you know the the popes and, the, and a few cardinals get together. Like, okay, how can we make this work? Okay, we're, we've been invaded. Uh, what do we do? This guy, and we see that this, uh, this, there's this hot princess over here named Clotilda. We're going to marry her to Clovis. She's going to convert him to Catholicism. And somehow this actually worked. <laughs> it's, it's like, this is how we got the first Catholic monarch, is, is that the popes, uh, the pope and the cardinals all schemed together to try to marry uh, Clovis off to some hot chick. Off, so what, what leads chick? to yeah. European monarchs just constantly warring with each other? Is it, is it all Protestantism? They didn't. Or? They really didn't. It's like, it's like that. It, it wasn't until you uh, you really started to get the uh, like what happened was at the end of like the 14th century, you started what happened was the popes had consolidated so much power that uh, they were like routinely deposing monarchs they didn't like, and you know the monarchs didn't like that. <laughs> it's like they didn't like that the, that the popes were just outclassing them 
over and over and over again, just completely monopolizing all power. And so that was kind of a problem. And so they're like, all right, we need a new system where the Pope isn't in charge. Oh, look, here's this Martin Luther guy saying we don't have to give a shit about him. Let's let's fund this guy. And what you find with all the Protestant reformers, every last one of them was funded by the state. You know, it, and like every single one of them, they had a, they had a bunch of state and no and backers amongst the nobility who were sick and tired of the popes bossing them around. And because the popes were just master politicians, and they had been for for like a millennia at that point. So and then, the uh, and then after that, everything with Protestantism went wonderfully well. Yeah, I mean, so it worked, we had a wonderful happy ending in the 20th century where we almost nuked ourselves you know, into oblivion. You know, it's, it's like the. Uh, I mean, it didn't work out great, but it's like, like the alternative was much worse. It's like it wasn't a perfect system, but like my God, it was so much better. It's like this was when the kings started to go go to war with each other, but because you know some of these kings really liked to have they they knew they had the popes at their back, and the other guys were like, eh, I don't really have the pope at my back, and I don't feel comfortable having you guys around. <laughs> yeah, it's like I feel like I'm surrounded by my enemies, and this is when you started to get a lot more European wars, and so. It really was because that, you know, unfortunately, it was a system that kind of worked a little bit too well, where the uh, the popes ended up consolidating up quite a lot of political power. And I mean, you, you had a uh, one famous story where in like the uh, the 12th century, where you know, I take it back 11th century, where the, uh, you know, there, you know, there was a, uh, a king who, in, you know, a holy Roman emperor who didn't really like the pope. And it's like, I don't think you're legitimate. I don't think you were the real one that was elected. And I kind of view it as my job to make sure we're going with the real guy, with the real Pope who is like this guy over here that I you know nominated, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, I think his name was, I think it was one of the Pope Bourbons. I forget, I forget the name of the actual Pope, but he goes and says like, all right, fuck you. You're not the Holy Roman Emperor anymore. And I am freeing all of your, all of your nobles from having to give a shit about what you think. And like within a year, the guy was deposed and he had to, and like, he, you know, like everybody went into rebellion. No per, no pleb, you know, wanted to pay his taxes to this home, Holy Roman Emperor. And there was nothing he could do about it. Like, and so what he ended up having to do was, you know, like crawl over, like physically crawl over by him, you know, almost by himself and a few of his servants over the Alps during winter to go beg the Pope at the doorstep of the Pope's mistress, <laughs> where the Pope had been staying. Oops. It's supposed to be celibates, you know, but uh, the Pope had a mistress and the king and the emperor knew it, went and begged at her doorstep for three days, you know, during the ice cold winter for the Pope to forgive him. And eventually the Pope did. And it's like, all right, you, you're, and by forgive, I mean, you're gonna be my bitch right now and kiss the ring. <laughs> it's like, this is what happened. <laughs> And this is like a, a famous story of, uh, you know, if you want to go on YouTube, uh, look for the kings and generals, uh, or it might be his, it might be History Marsh Channel. It's like why this king had to crawl over the Alps is the name of the video. Hilarious story of a, of a monarch getting his ass handed to him by the Christians. And the uh, anyway, but that was the uh, that was kind of what that just started a uh, that set a precedent. And monarchs didn't really want to cross the Pope from there on out. And the few that did, you know, same thing happened. And uh, this is what eventually started the Protestant Reformation where the kings were, kings and nobles were looking for a way to uh, not have to deal with the popes, you know. Enter Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Ulrich Zwingli. 
and eventually, and eventually, the secular, the really secular ones like uh, what's it like Rose Pierre, and uh, yeah. that's the those are the, the real those are the real crazies at the, at the French Revolution. Like yeah. those are the those are also Protestant reformers, and although we got know, the guillotine out of it, which is. Yeah, I mean, the reformers kept reforming the church until they reformed Christ right out of it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, uh, you know, the moment you reject authority, it's like, well, okay, then they can reject you and then reject you and then reject you and then reject and, you. And then this and... is where I think there's a, there's a nice yin yang to this uh, conversation because it's like, I think what you're, what, like, what I would say to you is that your sort of vision of monarchy needs the, the, tension and the pull of libertarianism to say like listen this stuff isn't going to work if you centralize power too much and you get too big you need to you know you need to really value markets and decentralization and competition and libertarianism now conversely what the tension you're putting on my system is like you need to respect authority you need to be okay with people consolidating some power and uh, acting, acting, you know, in you ways know, that you might go, oh, no, that looks too much like a state or it looks too much like someone ruling over other people. It's like, well, sometimes that's what people want is yeah, to yeah, kind of be ruled over. And, and that might, yeah. like, if you give people the ability to consent to things, they, it's like, you know, they'll consent to, you know, if you collectivizing together under people. And, and it is in a way division of labor like you said especially yeah i mean the, the the dirty little secret about you know consent ethics is people will consent to quite a lot of evil you know i mean hitler won his election every every election he was in and not by having to you know get be, be the guy counting the votes like he didn't have to you know it's like he would he won basically fair and square because the other because you know the weimar republic had been such a shit show and because of all, all these consent ethics and all this degeneracy that was running around I mean, there was a, the place was a nightmare, and it's like Hitler won fair and square, which is like the worst part of it is that you know he's not like Stalin, where Stalin's like you know the only one that actually counts is the guy counting the votes. It's like that guy cheated, you know. It's like you know Stalin and Lenin, like they they killed their way into power. I think, they, I think you know, we can blame that more on democracy than than we can libertarianism. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like yes, the problem is that if you, the moment you allow people consent-based ethics, it's like they'll consent to quite a lot of evil, and that has consequences, like Hitler. You know, it's, it's like the I mean back back in Weimar they had like transgenderism, they had child prostitution, they had all kinds of all kinds of fucked up shit. Libertarianism uh, is at, at best a a, a razor thin philosophy that should never be considered to be a a, a, a whole ethical framework to to, to organize society around. It, that's, that, that's the problem is that there's no such thing as a thin ethical framework as as I kind of mentioned is that you know, hey, this thing has philosophical presuppositions loaded into it that are very, very thick. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like material, it's a, materialism it's a, right there. Like materialism is its own religion. Like that is a religious presupposition right there that God doesn't exist or that all that exists is, you know, whatever physics can tell us exists. You know, that is a theological presupposition right there. That has very real consequences. It's like if that's not there, Libertarianism is very different. It looks very different. Right. So, so libertarianism have, is sort of a supplement, and and depending not even a supplement. on what it's its own religion. It is its own. It is. It is its own. All political ideologies, not just libertarianism, are their own religion. They all have religious presuppositions built into them at the philosophical layer. 
And it's like, and you know, what and what you see as libertarianism is like the final conclusions of all of these philosophies being weaved together, all of these theological presuppositions being weaved together. It's like, and like we we don't tend to think of it this way, which by the way is also a product of Protestantism. You know, dividing, you know, again, Kant's ideology right there, where he puts up a wall between, you know, reason and politics and religion over here. This is why we get this this idea that no, you know, yeah, the I think, I, be a thin ideology. I, I right think now. our yeah. politics should be informed yeah. by our, our religion. I think I think religion should. Well, it's should, like, it should is. Tra- should, I think religion should touch every aspect of society and our lives. I it's just not, think. Okay, I, just have, I just have. I, I just I have to wave a red flag when it comes to like listen, y- what we can't do is use our Christianity, pick up that sword, and say sinner stop sinning, at the point of the sword. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that that is that that is my. I call that libertarianism. If you want to call that something well, else that's a i guess a semantic battle that we'll have to well, i mean you can say i mean we do actually do that though like we say no murder no rape no theft well, yes, it's, yes, it's yes, like yes. the high priority items are the ones we do that for because resources are scarce and we have to prioritize that's the law of demand you know or the law of returns is that i, I know, think there's a biblical you know this might be for another episode i mean i, I do think there are biblical teachings that i don't think catholicism would would scoff at in terms of you know looking at sinners and saying, listen, stop sinning, but also you leave them to go on their yeah, way sinning if they Thomas, don't stop sinning. Yeah, Thomas Aquinas, you know, used the prostitution example that I always always use yeah, that, yeah. you know, hey, if you ban this, it's actually going to make it worse. And so it's probably better just regulate them. His suggestion was basically a red light district. Like you shove them off at the edge of the, uh, you know, there's like one little, you cordon them off in one little part of, bad part of town and it's a red light district. And, well, and if you take away the state as we have it today and the state's funding and supporting of these sorts of sinful behaviors and degeneracies they don't i'm not saying they disappear but i don't think they they they, they sort of naturally do seclude themselves to the corners of society much more than we have in today's society where it's you know blasted in the public schools and blasted over the media the, the the left controls the state and all of the state hybrid institutions that are you know yeah. it's called twitter and and social media companies are called it's a private company bro it's like yeah but is it really like it's, well it's, it's, i mean technically prostitution is entirely legal in america as long as you film it and distribute it for money right it's like well it's like it's like and they don't get any tax benefits i mean they don't really have like trademarks on this shits you know it's no trademark on the porn hub you know it's like the uh you know, maybe maybe the Pornhub itself is a trademark, but all the, yeah, I'm not going there because I, I love the logo. I'm going there because there's like you know there's like some some leg some woman spreading her legs and all that and all that. That's the reason they're going there. None of that is subsidized. You know, none of that is has any ta- preferential tax treatment. Well, no, it's indirectly subsidized. Eighty percent of the internet. I mean, porn no, I, is eighty percent of the internet. This is not like I mean, it's not really cordoned off. It's doing quite well and. Uh, Turns out people really want it, and uh, it's a uh, yeah. But yeah, how would you? I mean, like, even if because because I, I could argue that I mean, tax, there's yeah, a lot of advertisers. If you if you want if you want to if you want to if you want to do something about it, tax the advertisers. You know, that's where the money's coming in. That's what that's the real funding. The private funding for this is coming from ad revenue. I just put a tax on that, and 
you know, if you, and uh, you know, hey, if you want less of something, put a tax on it. And you don't. And uh, right now, the IRS is going after like middle class people. We could retask them to go after porn, which I probably walk and watching porn at work anyway. They're the government. You know what I, mean? I think the other thing though is that the state and its interventions creates the demographic of people who then go into the porn industry because of things like broken families and 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 things like that, and and incentivize. You didn't have that in monarchy. You did not have that under monarchy. It's like you had wonderfully t- you had tight knit together families who all lived with in, in like high geographic I mean, like you look at like the Bible. I mean, they definitely the monarchy there incentivized a lot of the debauchery and and things like that. So I mean, uh, yeah, compared to like the republics. You know, compared, it's like you have to, you have to, you know, take these. No, yeah, I mean, compared to what? Like, listen, monarchy is better than democracy and republics like all day long. Like, you'll get no disagreement from me there. It just compared to the anarchy that preceded it, the monarchies were a lot more stable, a lot more happy. They never had that really invasion problem again until the Babylonians rolled through, and. yeah, that then it became a problem, and then they there, were... there was there was a long period of of I mean there was there were problems in the anarchy, but there were also long periods where there really weren't problems and people were living at peace. So I, I mean, mean it, it, ended, it ended up getting so bad to the point they're like, just give us a king. We can't do this. We can't do this. But what, you what, know, what, but what, what got bad was because they were was there. It wasn't because of the anarchy. It was because of the sin. It was because the, the, it, and there's no enforcement mechanism there. There's no, uh, yeah, there, there's no real enforcement mechanism. But then we see later that the enforcement mechanism leads them into their sin, and that I don't know. It's only only two thirds of the time, which is still a much better batting average. You know what I mean? It's like I, I don't know. Like I, I, I'd be willing to bet that they were a lot closer than what I think. You're, I, I think that it's. I think sin in some ways, just like yeah, it's non-existence. Uh, it leads to serfdom and slavery and death. Yeah, and uh, it necessarily so because it's non-existence. And you know, the uh, it's like you know that you had like twenty-one, I think, kings in the in the uh, in the old in the Old Testament. Uh, fourteen, uh, fourteen of them were awful, and seven pretty good. And you know, so it's like a one-third batting average on on them. And uh, unfortunately, this you know, all seven were in the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was ter- absolutely terrible because they were the southern kingdom was the legitimate kings, so half of them were okay, and the northern kings were chosen by the people who always suck at choosing leaders. And it's like, and so they got wiped out by the Assyrians, and uh, they, they they're not there anymore. And so <clears throat> the. Uh, you know, it's like eventually you got really bad kings down in, Ju- in Judah too, and then they got wiped out by the Babylonians, and they're the only ones that came back after the Babylonian captivity, only to get to get conquered by Alexander the Great, the Nephilim. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's like, and then the, and then they managed to uh, he died early, shocker. You know, that's like the way all the other Nephilim died early, and uh, and then his generals took over, and they didn't. Uh, you know, they weren't able to really consolidate power. So, you know, what did the Jews do? They made a, they made a really good allies in the Roman Republic. You know, who came to help them fight off their god, fight off their oppressors, and then never left. <laughs> yeah. And then and then we get to the New Testament, and then you know they get wiped out. So the uh, like it, the system, you know, you get like Herod and all. You know, it's like you started off with a really bad, really bad dude. It's like killing all the firstborns. You know, it's like, you know, it's like as again, this is a, it's not a perfect system. But once you get like Christian monarchy, it actually starts working out really well. 
It's like you started off with barbarians like King Clovis who would like kill, like burn to death his, uh, you know, his uh, like brother-in-law and all that who like trying to you know, compete with him to the throne. And eventually you get to like Charlemagne or, and Pepin the Great, or, you know, who are like, you know, really real defenders of Christianity, really moral and pious men for all of their many, many faults. And uh, yes, it, but they were still better than the dictators in Constantinople. It's like, you know, kind of, you know, what's his face? Charlemagne couldn't even read. And uh, he, uh, you know, but like, you know, and he was, you know, has real bad moves. Like his heart was in the right place. It, it, he, whenever he had a, re like, whenever there was a, a rebellion in Germany, uh, the, you know, it rarely start, it rarely did not start with like the burning of a church. So Charlemagne had the wonderful idea that, you know, what if I just, you know, forced all of the, all of them to uh, convert to Christianity and tried back and just forcibly baptized all of them. Then everyone, then the Holy Spirit would come down, and uh, you know they would, and everything would be peaceful. And we had to explain him, and no, 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 that doesn't actually work that way. They actually have to choose it and all that. And he's like, really? If like choice is a real is a is a thing here, never occurred to him that like personal choice might be a factor. <laughs> like this was like the kind of guy that we chose over the dictatorship in in uh, in Constantinople. It's like this is the guy. <laughs> it's like this is the better alternative. And we still managed to turn them into uh, no you know, Charlemagne. Uh, we are not Islam. <laughs> yeah, it's like, we, it's like we still managed to turn them into like much better guys, you know, than the you know who were like the lords and ladies of legend, and who were much more moral and much and actually, you know, they like the first, you know, so like what was Charlemagne's response to when we told him, oh, this consent thing really matters? He's like, hmm. So let me try it. So let, let me just do a public education campaign where we're going to educate all of the priests on the Nicene Creed and the Lord's Prayer to make sure we're all on the same page because we weren't actually all on, all on the same page. And so you have the first public education campaign in human history, you know, you know empire-wide, which is all of Europe at that point. The entire uh, European continent was ruled by Charlemagne. And so what happened? It's like we, we tried. We, let's, let's try this whole civilization thing, where we try civilizing the barbarians and teaching them Christianity. Turned out it worked really well. And uh, right, you know, but, but the, the the final point because I I got to go here. The final point I yeah. make is like what you're describing was done without the sword. They, did, they, uh, they, they didn't know, use the sword to make people more Christian. They used it was taxpayer funded, <laughs> so like they technically did. It's, it's, it's like it, it was a public education campaign in the truest sense of the word. It was the first one of a kind. Yeah, you know, before that, no one ever thought, well, why should we educate plebs? This was the first time that was ever done because the priests were all plebs, and not you know a lot of them couldn't even read. And they, they sometimes they usually could, but not always. And so we had to teach them that, then teach them the creed, then teach them the Lord's prayer, and all that. It was the first of a kind. And what so were the, what were the tax rate? I mean, I'd want to see what the tax rates were less than ten percent. Like I mean, I'm talking low, you know, low. I mean, I mean, because nice today. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's like again, the taxes were always lower because if you tried to raise them too much, you got rebellions. You know, when the war was over, the, oh, because of the rebellion, the king actually paid down his debt instead of taking out way more loans. Yeah, there was no fiat currency more. system. They couldn't just, you know. Hard money. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's like, it was a pretty good, it's like, if you go down the checklist, you know, by the like, invented private property, invented, you know, all of the scientists, every last scientific discipline, you know, invented, you know, modern civilization, basically as we know it. And it's like, yeah, it's like, this was a really good working system that we've kind of been running on the fumes of. And, 
you know, now that you took the, the monarchy and the good incentives away, now we're having weapon that all of that technology we've invented is now like a new surround. Brave now. new world, here we come. Yeah, exactly. Now it's all being used for evil and it's fucking terrifying. It's like, <laughs> it's like this didn't happen. It's like remember that uh you know that that uh that road sign that had George Bush on it said miss me yet? There needs to be one with like the Catholic monarchs with Charlotte Charlemagne's face on like miss me yet. <laughs> hey, it's like, yeah, I do. Those guys are better. It was a much better system, and it was like it worked fantastically well because it was the natural order, as it you know basically as it should be. You needed a few minor twists. Yeah, you needed that second price system. You only had the one price system down at the bottom at the taxation level. That's you know fees you get, you pay, fees you pay for statecraft services, you know, whether you want to or not. It's like we only had the one price system for power down at the bottom. We needed that second one up at the top. You know, for the shareholder level, we didn't have that, and because of that, you get incompetent kings who don't know how to consolidate power and don't know how to recognize true religion and see that you know the big you know hey if I fund all of this heresy and error, it's going to backfire on me stupendously because I ended up funding all of the guys who gave the moral justification for the rebels to overthrow my ass. <laughs> it's like that was what happened. It's like they didn't quite see it, think it through all the way, and because they're not very good, you know thinkers and not very good consolid not good at consolidating power which requires you to know the truth and so if you can't do that you're going to get overthrown which is the downfall of the system oops so but you need that second price system at the top to stop that from happening so that's why i say corporate monarch monarchical statecraft is really the solution it was the fully fleshed out monarchical system that doesn't have that scalability problem ooops well let's let's see if we can end on a point of agreement here I would say Brave New World is the better and more accurate dystopian novel if you compare it to 1984, which is the one people love to quote. Yeah, I would say it's a false choice because the uh, you know that hideous strength by C.S. Lewis nails it. It nails exactly where we are right now in reality because that is the only one that presumes demons are behind all of this. Yeah, but there's something about the part in Brave New World where they're uh, conditioning children to have sexual experiences and to not be ashamed of them that really fits with our current trajectory. Yeah, yeah, that that one is in. Yeah, that one. Yeah, C.S. Lewis wasn't quite that imaginative, but uh, you did get the transhumanism that was behind all of it. So, (laughs) anyway, great talking with you. Yeah, you too, man. so, I hope I've given you a lot to think about about like you know where these things actually come from, where these differences actually are. Because I think when you I think when you meditate on this long enough, you know you end up changing your Twitter handle to Biblical Monarchy. <laughs> I don't know. I, some some of it to me is a bit semantical, but but I'm a lot closer to you in terms of the end stuff than I am on the exact presuppositional stuff but well no i think you're you're right there with me on the presuppositional stuff you're trying to figure out how can i still get the old libertarianism through the through the through the christian system and i'm telling you right now it's not going to work you know you can keep trying but eventually you're going to give up and you're like yeah you know i never had a point and uh particularly with the more you see like the let the the uh like when you see nominalism in play when you because once you see it you can't unsee it and once you see the all, once you the more and more you see it, you're like, ooh, this doesn't work at all. That's like, uh, this is well, really it, it, it has to, to me. It has it to has work to with work Christianity. Christianity. It can't it work can't if you if you have libertarianism. It's a it it you know yeah, it it's a hellhole. 
That's the thing. It's like, like novelism is intrinsic to a lot of conclusions of libertarianism. It's like you do not get the same system of property rights, the same conclusions of libertarianism without novelism. It it has to be there, or many many well, different. I mean, there's there's parts of what I would call Christian libertarianism. I think doesn't have some of those same baggages as intellectual pure, property. Yeah. Pure libertarianism has. Yeah. Um, like for example, like, for I'm not as anti. I don't think. Yeah. You know, corporations exist? Do they not? You know, does intellectual property exist? Does it not? Do does your reputation exist in a scarce way, or does it not? You know, do, does you know? Is there a right to sin? Is there not? You know, these are you know are all human actions equally the same? It's really, no, the right to right sin part, part where we have the biggest disagreement, and and we'll have to have to continue to. Uh, I'll continue to to contemplate on your your arguments there, but that's that's the podcast one. In the, yeah. Two podcasts in the description is where you know is where I think you know, I think once you get through it, it's like it's it's tough to tough not to stop seeing it. So well, I'll, I'll give them a listen. But uh, yeah, thanks, man. This was this was a lot of fun. I hope you uh, hope hope you and your family are doing well. That little one. Uh... The baby's as big as the government now. Yeah, <laughs> he's going so fast. Ninety-nine percentile height, weight, head size, and uh, he's already crawling too. Our, our, our baby is, our baby is off the charts, like beyond the 99th percentile. Yeah. Right? <laughs> he's going like the federal government. Oh, well, that's because he never gets off the boob. It's, it's, it's two yeah, right? are sleeping, wake up, breast milk. Breast milk. <laughs> yeah, it's the breast milk, I guarantee it. It's like that formula, those babies are much tinier. And, yep. uh, anyway, great talking with you, buddy. Yep, you yep, too, man. You too, Take man. it easy. Take it easy.